2: Uh, welcome back to HerdTel. Okay, it's been a minute. She had not been here since March. Thrilled to have her back. Our friend from over in the UK, Alice Watson-Brown, has returned to HerdTel. How are you, ma'am? Glad to have you back.
3: I'm really well, thank you. I'm fresh out of university. I have finished my degree and uh, just kind of recover from it and have a good summer and just chill out, I think.
2: Yeah, it's got to be a good feeling, doesn't it? Um, yeah. While we're on the subject, we talk about uh, people moving around the UK. Y'all got yourself a rail strike going on Uh, for the American audience, because the culture is different. Mass transit is a much bigger deal in the UK than it is here because we're such a much bigger country, more spread out. Uh, There's two sides to these things. Of course, there's the practical side and there's the political side. Just give us both. Practically, what is this rail strike doing and politically what is happening with it?
3: Well, practically, um, it's stopping millions of people from getting around the country and getting to work. And it is basically a protest in the context of inflation, cost of living, the fact that public sector workers in the UK haven't received a pay rise in line with this huge, you know, this, the inflation crisis, uh, whilst MPs seem to have increased their pay rise around two grand, I think, uh, in the last two years. So there's that kind of inequality. And then politically in the UK, the trade unions uh, say, we're going to strike. We want the government to give us what we want. We want more rights for our workers. We want more pay for our workers. And it's it's basically trying to emotionally blackmail the government through, you know, emotive language in the way that, you know, it's workers versus, you know, the the elite and the state. It's this, you you can tell what their political motivation is. Um, and it's incredibly disruptive, whether you support it or deny it, no one can say that it's not disruptive. Um, and what's interesting though, is that people, usually if you, a rail strike pre-COVID um, would happen, people would be mad, taking taxis everywhere. There's, everyone would be walking to work, cycling to work. But now you walk through the streets and it's really empty because people have started working from home. And especially it's a really sunny week. People don't wanna be going to the office. They'll just say, I'm just going to work from home. I mean, my family have done that. Um, So whether the effect it has is going to be as widespread and as sort of felt by the consumer this time is up for debate. Um, But the popularity of commuting by car and working from home, as I said, could well see passengers now just desert railways and never to return, especially given that, you know, they're not nationalized in the UK. So prices can really vary. Um, You can pay 200 pounds to get a train to Edinburgh in Scotland when it's cheaper to fly there via Paris. It doesn't make sense. Yeah.
2: And of course, the backdrop here is interesting. And the timing is really interesting because you have, you know, front page of the Times today, UK inflation hits 40 year high. Uh, Cost of living is dominating the headlines. It uh, dominated prime minister questions this morning. Uh, th- this, is something that's affecting absolutely everybody. So the question of course is, and I'm not against unions as a rule, but, uh, strikes are about timing and strikes are about public sentiment. That's really what a strike is for. Everybody's hurting right now. This may not be the time to fly that flag of, Hey, we want a little extra when these folks are probably doing just a little bit better than folks in the Midlands or in the outs parts of the country where number one, this doesn't affect them as much. And number two is they're going to watch it on TV and go, what are they thinking? Everybody's hurting here. Is that fair, or is that the common sentiment?
3: I think there's, I think that is definitely one way of looking at it, and in a way, you you could be right. However, I think they have timed it possibly quite well because there is everyone is hurting right now, as you said, and what better way to go up against the government and all this inflation and this this grievance than to support. A very disruptive anti-government protest. And it's not just the rail strikers, the the rail workers and their their strike. Teachers are threatening to strike, nurses like nurses. So all across the public sector, there is this this, you know, they want to, there's this impediment between the rulers and the workers. Um, but I suppose one way you could spin this, which a lot of people might disagree, is that this could be good for Prime Minister Johnson because it distracts himself it distracts the press anyway from anything to do with party gate anything to do with the latest palaver with his wife carrie johnson um anything any misdemeanors in his office that have really um undermined uh, opinion of him spe- spe- specifically within the conservative party um so maybe this could be a uniting factor for the conservatives and you know take tension away from, you know, the leadership election and the vote of no confidence. It depends on how he handles it. And currently how he's handling it is ostracizing the leader of the opposition. So, Sakir Starmer of the Labour Party. And the Labour Party, um, it's the most interesting, th- I personally think it's the most interesting party in, in the UK. They are, they used to be the parties of the trade unions. Their leadership elections, their internal structure used to be so heavily dominated by the trade unions. Uh, and, and their leaders and how they could really choose which leader got elected and how much influence they had in in drafting policies. And Sakir Starmer hasn't said anything. He hasn't been clear about it. And the fact that he's not made a clear stand when his MPs are out there on the picket lines really speaks about the state of the Labour Party right now. So Johnson really could use this as it is, as to, to his advantage to present a you know, united conservative government.
2: Let's talk about those labor folks for a minute, because um, now I'm an American. So just go real slow and use small words explaining explain this to me. Maybe when you put the U in labor, it changes things. But we had a really interesting scene with the Labor Party where you have Keir Starmer and the leadership and the front bench telling the back bench that they shouldn't be seen on the picket lines. Now, I'm not exactly a labor supportive, but if you're the labor party and there's a labor strike, that seems like something that would be in your wheel. I, I just kind of shook my head. I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. What, what are they doing over there?
3: <laughs> it's a symptom of a wider identity crisis within the labor party of this country. And I think social democracy in general, um, obviously, labor had its great sort of decline and fall. Um after, you know, Gordon Brown and and the the financial crisis when, you know, I I don't know if you know the term Keynesian economics um, in, yeah, so that was sort of the alternative economic model to capitalism or or, or neoliberalism and Keynesian sort of, Keynesianism fell and sort of Tony Blair created this third way and that obviously built a rift between the more traditional Labour supporters and Tony Blair also did try, didn't try to incorporate trade union influence into his party. He didn't um, redact the infamous policies of Mrs. Thatcher um, regarding their ability to strike. And since then, they have had no economic policy that can appeal in the way capitalism does. Um, and they've also got this legacy of just being bad with the economy. Um, they always have. They always seem to screw it up. Um, you know, you can't just tax and spend. People understand that now. Um, and there's as well as this now in this age of identity politics, there is this very common question now that I would say more right wing commentators always ask Labour MPs when they come on air. They go, can you define a woman? And most of them can't answer. Most of them can't answer. And that's driven away a lot of people. It, it, it's fundamentally a crisis of identity. This. Um, writer called patrick diamond has written far better than i can explain and in depth on this so if you want to know more do do look him up he's he's very good at that uh, explaining why yeah it's um, a
2: universal problem we're having the same thing over here with our you know even inside our democratic party which is our left wing yeah. party you have the the center left and then you have the social democratic wing that's yeah. getting more and more progressive and they <laughs> never the twain will meet apparently except when there's an election to be had it's the same thing and it's more social and economic stuff it's kind of it's really interesting how universally how much of this since you brought it up how much of this falls on keir starmer now to be fair to the labor party they've bounced back from the from the corbin years and the disaster that that was they did decently well in the recent local elections they did pretty well especially in london places like this so it's not the house on fire but at the same time a lot of people are looking at all the problems boris johnson's having and then looking at their own side up front and going man, we should, we should be doing better than this against what Boris Johnson's doing. Uh, a lot of labor folks have been saying those sorts of things. Is that all far on Keir Starmer or is Boris Johnson just that Teflon? Where's the mix of those two meet?
3: I think Sir Keir Starmer Starmer um, hasn't been a force of personality. He hasn't bought a spark or a fire um, to the way he speaks. He keeps missing open goals. There were so many to so many criticisms that he could have weaponized during COVID. Um, And I think that was the big thing for his leadership. People didn't know what he stood for apart from just saying, oh, this policy is too late, or this policy is wrong without actually saying what he would bring to the table. Um, But you could argue that, um, you know, in this sort of economic situation, especially, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, a leader like that, a figurehead, a motive, you know, populist figurehead could be what Labour would need to win an election. Not that I'm saying, you know, it, it, would be, it would be good, but I think he weaponized the anti-austerity narrative incredibly well. He mobilized the youth vote incredibly well. Um, and it doesn't look like Starmer really is doing that at the moment. Um, obviously we're regarding the cost of living and things like that. He's not stirring the masses in the way that Labour can. And um, as we are going back to the identity crisis, this, it, it's happened throughout Europe in their social democratic parties as well. And it's, it's a trend, it's a very interesting trend to see, you know, since 2008, um, all these, yeah, these social democratic parties in the center left kind of fracturing. And then I, I suppose with you as well, you, you have the Nancy Pelosi's and then you have the AOC's and um, they, don't, they don't necessarily mesh well but one of them has to catch up with the other at some point.
2: Yeah, Allison Watson Brown joining us. Okay. So just how big an issue is the cost of living crisis? It's obviously you know front page. it's obviously dominating social media. You're there. We're not though. Turn the noise down on the news and tell us just on a practical level. Is this what everybody in in Britain and the u k is talking about? is it Is this the dominant issue of the time right now for folks over there?
3: Yes, it's gone from changing the way you go to a supermarket, Um, you know, I'm a student and notoriously I'm poor, right? And uh, my sort of 25 pound a week food budget was my big thing. Um, And it was my kind of, it was my shop, but now what I would have to do is just kind of fill my basket up with the essentials until I hit my my budget mark. And then I just couldn't buy any more because that was it, right? And uh, luckily, I'm in a position where, you know, I have have a very good home life and my parents were able to help me out a little bit. Um, But there are a lot of people who aren't. However, right now, the weather's hot. People are happy. People can go out and they don't need to worry about heating their homes because families are choosing between putting the heater on and putting meals on the table, which is horrible. And it's not just that. It's it's petrol. It's it's going places, and if people can't afford to go out and buy their Starbucks coffee because they have to save money, or buy their you know buy their pastry on the way to work, that means the workers in those cafes and in those restaurants are losing out as well. It's a never-ending cycle of of pretty much just depression. Um, I suppose the news in some way is not doesn't necessarily over exaggerate this. It's it's true, you see it everywhere. And it's, it's the supermarkets, especially, um, are all competing on their, um, you know, get, save money on this, on this deal, on that deal. Um, and there was this huge, um, huge story about the government were gonna ban two for one or buy one, get one free on ready meals in their tackle to, you know, in their aim to tackle child obesity and they, uh, Decided not to go forward with that in the cost of living crisis because you know any food's food, right? You need to feed your kids, and yeah, some people don't have a choice, and um, you know uh, it, it caused a lot of backlash. But actually, sadly, that's what we've we that's come to. Um, but yeah, that that's from my perspective as a young person, and even more annoyingly, um, I coming from London, you now have to pay like seven pounds fifty for a pint of lager. And it doesn't make going out that fun.
2: Yeah, that's 10 bucks for uh, those of you from Logan that aren't up on the uh, pound sterling conversion to US yeah. dollars. That's that's an expensive drink, uh, Alice Watson Brown. One last political question and we're going to switch gears. Um, Boris Johnson, uh, he, he seems to just, oh, it's over, oh, it's not over. Oh, it's over, it's not over. Now we had the Lord Gate thing. We've had the ethical stuff. We've had the carry the stuff over the last week or so. Uh, but he doesn't seem like he's really going to be going anywhere. I know there's a a little bit of election fatigue. There's no clear-cut replacement for him. Those factor in as well. He just keeps squiggling out of these tight spots and pressing on ahead. It's kind of remarkable to watch, really, isn't it?
3: I think the last point that you said is probably the most influential of the fact why he's still there. There is no real alternative replacement to Boris Johnson. There's no real forerunner. I mean, there are whisperings about MPs sort of red wall anti lockdown MPs so people like Steve Baker who wanted to leave the lead the covid recovery group but their only political message is you know i was against lockdown there's no kind of philosophy about them as there is with Boris Johnson um and i think also Ukraine he's been praised personally by zelensky for you know our solidarity and our rate our help for them, but he you know, I guess he he just keeps seems to keep going and um whilst I have fallen out of love with him many, many times um i i I would see no one else who I would vote for um but he doesn't Boris Johnson is a man who is desperate to be liked, and if he left office, he wouldn't leave office in a crisis. he would leave because. He, he wasn't elected if that makes sense
2: yeah it does one of our uk friends kind of put it this way he because i asked him how bad it, we, we knew the we knew the party gate picture was eventually going to show up because that's just the world we live in and he he kind of made it half joking but it turned out too. he's like that that view of him walking through kiev outweighed that party gate picture he's like you yeah. watch and sure enough it did he was right all right alice watson brown we're going to switch gears we've been banging on the brits a little bit her turn she's going to take a shot at our government and specifically the fda we'll talk a little america with our friend alice watson brown over in the uk late of bristol but she's done with them now we'll be right back more hotel right after that Back to tell Alice Watson-Brown has returned to the program after far too long of a break. We'll make sure it's sooner when you come back next time. Okay, your turn. You get to take some shots at us. Uh, the FDA. Now, the FDA got a lot of uh, press the last few years because of COVID and things like that. But their main job of regulatory stuff, you touched in on it. You've been talking about smoking. You've got a piece out at Center Square talking about it. This has just been their bugaboo for about pretty much my whole adult lifetime since so, you know, I was born in the 80s. So the last 30, 40 years specifically, it's just been a war on smoking and smokers. You're writing about it. Now we've gotten in, and Joe Biden's been talking about this too, the methanol ban, and now they're talking about the age ban. Um, smoking's way down in America. Why is this still such a priority for the FDA? Uh, because... <laughs>
3: The FDA seems to be confusing public health and politics again and again, as do many other uh, health.
2: No, uh, you don't say
3: political health organizations. And it's strange. I don't know why it's such a trend. Um, It's their priority because smoking and well, yeah, drinking and doing bad stuff to your body of your own volition is the one thing that the government have not yet been able to properly control, because it is something that is truly down to human agency. And not the state and it's same with the war on vaping and this whole ridiculous thing about controlling people's perception of risk and that is not human that that is not how humans function um and so the and the problem that i really can't stand is that with these policies like the menthol ban the vaping ban uh, and things like that is that it's done using the the pretense that it's protecting minorities. It is done saying, oh, it's gonna help women. It's gonna help LGBTQ plus people. It's gonna help race equality. And it's like, okay, so you're gonna criminalize something which a lot of minorities do, mainly African-Americans, whilst you're in an incarceration crisis of which African-American citizens are overly represented. Is that, that doesn't make sense. And you're also, it's just not on a human level. This is, it's on an economic level. It it stumps innovation in the sector um, and and it stunts, you know, informed knowledge. And it's having smoked from a young age. I went to a boarding school in the middle of the countryside and it was sort of the only thing we were able to do to try and have some fun. Um, I quit using vaping and you know flavored alternatives that were tobacco uh you know smoke-free and uh, without that i would not have quit and i'm thankful for for you know the wonders of innovation for helping me do that but people do not quit smoking because their moms or the government tells them to they do it because they feel an innate need to better themselves and um the state of Colorado has. This is why I love America because you, you know, I love how you have separate governments that you can. It's an experiment, you know, a, a lab test, as I used to learn it as. Um, the state of Colorado also tried to do a. They've also issued a statement saying they want to ban menthols, and um, the the projected damage to their economy could amount to you know four point six billion dollars. You know, with five thousand businesses who rely on the sale of these products. As well as their consumers, you know, to be hit by this. And alternatively, people are just going to be taken to the black market. So there are so many things wrong with the FDA's war on smoking and on alternatives. It just, you know, why don't you try and give people a little bit of a better life by empowering them? Then they might be able to make some decisions about how about their health and about their life. It it just It's nonsensical, and I've always said it.
2: The thing to me, and the heavy-handedness and the nonsensical uh, bureaucracy of using a hammer to kill a fly for these things really becomes evident to me with the vaping thing. Because on one hand, you're saying, we're going to spend this massive amount of taxpayer money to get everybody to quit smoking. And then on the other hand, you're taking away the one thing that every smoker I've ever known that quit using it swears up and down is the best thing ever to get them to quit smoking. And they're doing it at the same time And I understand the bureaucracy does that because that's how you get your funding and that's how you get your researching. That's how you get your budget items because you can do multiple things at once. But it's so nonsensical to say, okay, we're going to hammer people for smoking because of the health costs, whatever. Okay, fine. Give them the alternative. Oh, no, we're going to ban the alternative at the same time. That's just so blatantly nanny state nonsense that I, I just don't know how it's even defensible other than the fact it's a line item in a budget for thousands and thousands of people. And that's the, the reason it keeps going, because I can't find any other better excuse for it, because even anti-smoking people are like, yes, vaping helps. I mean, it's the most helpful thing ever for these folks.
3: It, I'm not usually a fan of, you know, binaries, but you cannot be... um anti vaping but without being pro-smoking you, you just can't and, and that the FDI are trying to go along these two pa- FDA sorry are going on these two parallel paths of policy that can never possibly meet and can never possibly be good for anyone and the vaping it's the pro- honest thing they they want to follow the science but they won 't follow the science that vaping is ninety nine percent safer or that the more you invest in companies which you know harm reduction initiatives the more businesses are going to innovate and provide new more accessible even safer products for people who want to quit and it's it's the same with the world health organization and it's what you were saying about funding is it's people like michael bloomberg who is a philanthropist and um has these companies called it's called campaign for tobacco-free kids and this company is guess what funded by the world health organization and it leads you in thinking it's trying to stop child poverty and things like that but actually it just um you know pumps money blackmails poorer governments like mexico to enact smoking bans and you know in order to they give them money uh to say oh you can spend this on healthcare if you if you ban this if you ban vaping because if you don't ban vaping then we're not going to help you and it's 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 awful. It's it's sort of corruption in that way.
2: It's not only corruption, Alice Watson Brown joining us on hard tail. It's not only corruptions, it's incompetence. Because we have we have evidence in recent memory of this. The World Health Organization, uh Bloomberg and others, he's not the only one, he's just the biggest fish in that pond. So Bloomberg, the FDA. They spend all this bandwidth on this. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do understand that things don't happen in a vacuum, they happen in a sequence. So when you have something like COVID, where it was so mismanaged, and the corruption of the World Health Organization with China and other things, and you have the incompetence of the FDA, and you have people who needed to be able to believe in things like the like the FDA, like the National Health Institute, like whatever By the equivalent, course. the NHS in England is the exact same thing and in the UK. They need to be able to trust these folks, but even a major government bureaucracy only has so much bandwidth, you can't tell me when you're spending your resources and your time and your money and the public facing stuff at this because it's popular with certain folks. And then a pandemic hits and you're unprepared. I'm, I'm going to judge you on that and go, well, maybe we should have spent more time on that that actually has a huge, graphic, horrible body count to it instead mm-hmm. of this pet project thing that is more of a personal choice, even though we there's no smoker I've ever met in their life that doesn't know it's not bad for them. Okay. Yeah. Right. But there's no way those two things aren't connected. I, I, I know that's a little broad, but that's just the facts. You can't, they need to spend time on things that matter. Like we just had a headline in the UK, polio is back in the UK for the first time. Yeah. First I just years. saw
3: that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> but, um, but
2: that's the point though. It's like, maybe you should focus on actual public health stuff instead of political public health. That is a financial and political cudgel to go beat people over the head with
3: that would you know mistake that kind of thing I would be knocked off my chair if that actually happened um no I agree that's a lot of people say that it's con- conspiratorial thinking to you know connect dots and as a, I agree with you, I wouldn't say I'm a conspiracy theorist but it has just seemed that in the last few years there is just this kind of um emerging battle against just personal choice with the most ridiculous ridiculous justifications for it and i don't i i i'm I'm worried in a way and i love the idea of the fda of you know a a health service for everyone and in a way a, a world you know a world health initiative so we can draw talent from all countries to to research and and help people all across the world that you can't no rational person can be against that right but this it's A very small amount of people who receive a very large amount of money who go, yeah, I'll try this just to see what happens. And I won't care about how many people it affects. And that is incomprehensible to me as to why this has been allowed to go on for so long. And as to why even a leader like, you know, Boris Johnson is still considering partnering with the World Health Organization and... If if it's flabbergasts me, it does.
2: Uh, we've, we've public health has turned into a misnomer because there's not really anything public about it. It's just government that needs to yeah. be more accountable and unaccountable government is always going to be a mess no matter what form it takes. Uh, Alice Watson Brown, outstanding stuff. They will link to your piece in the show notes like we always do. Uh, it's been too long, but until we get you back on again, which is not going to be four months, it'll be a lot faster this time, mm-hmm. I promise. Uh, let folks know how they can keep up with you and what you got going on until they see you again.
3: Sorry, could you repeat that? Sorry. Yeah, no worries. Uh, <laughs> so
2: until we get you back on, let folks know where they can follow you, your social media, and what you got going on until we see you again.
3: Yeah, so um, my Twitter handle is Alice Watson Brown, just at Alice Watson Brown, spelt A-L-Y-S. Um, and currently, I'm just going to be doing a lot of reading and I'll be writing more, appearing more on radios and stuff. So do give me a follow on Twitter as that is where I post most of my appearances. So,
2: yep. And she teased us with this uh, garlic pesto thing a couple months ago and has abandoned oh, yeah. Twitter supper club since then. We need you back. We need our UK uh, branch of Twitter supper club to up their game a bit yeah looking Have forward. Have more to time
3: to cook now <laughs>
2: yes ma'am uh thank you so much for your time always a pleasure talking to you we'll make sure to put all your information for folks to follow you alice watson brown outstanding job as always talk again soon my friend
3: thank you
2: thank you ma'am Welcome back to Hurtel. Okay. He's our election expert because he's an expert in elections and he's self made, did it that way. Part of our friends over at elections daily.com, along with uh, some other folks over there that we see frequently on the program. Joe Zamansky, how are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing very well. It's a rainy day here in Central Pennsylvania, but I'm doing very well today, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Does that have anything to do with the uh, poll numbers that are now out about the races, especially for governor and senator in Pennsylvania? Because those look a little grim and gloomy if you're the GOP, don't they?
5: They do right now. But, you know, I think as we've lived and learned from not only the 2020 elections, but from Virginia in 2021, you don't really see those polls. Uh, kind of materialize what people are feeling until August when these campaigns really ramp up. So, you know, these early summer polls, you know, they're a good data point, but taken with a grain of salt for right now, August is when you really start to see the numbers start piling up.
2: Now I'll push on that one just for the point of discussion. The the pushback on that one is Glenn Youngkin was relatively unknown uh, outside of Virginia in Virginia, probably relatively unknown. He built his brand and identity through that race and won that race That's not what we got in the Senate here. We got Oz, who has all kinds of negatives and a well-established background, so the opinions on him are kind of baked into the cake. You've done this a while. You do the numbers. Does he have movement numbers in the poll to make up? This looks like it's going to be a a two- to five-point race somewhere in there all the way around back and forth. Does he have movement in the polls to get those kind of numbers?
5: I think, he, you know, the, the thing with Oz is that he just got to get his approvals with our Republicans up. You know, obviously it was a very, very long and hard and heavy primary uh, in Pennsylvania for that Senate race. Obviously, he took a lot of hits, not only from Team McCormick, but from uh, Team Barnett that he was not, especially from Team Barnett, that he was not uh, Republican enough. You know, that was a question that followed him the whole time. And it'll be very interesting to see, you know, kind of how that develops here. But I think that is something he can make up, though, is that fact that he can still, I think, build uh, that, you know, that back up with Republicans and kind of build up that uh, that approval rating back up there as they kind of meet both candidates. I think, again, that's that's what that's what he needs to do. It's not even just a what he could do. This is what this is a what he needs to do type of option.
2: Now, I'll, I'll admit, we all have our biases. We're grown folk talk here on Hertel. I have biases, so I'll just put it out there. Uh, I, I would not vote for him. I don't like the Turkey stuff. I don't like the Erdogan stuff. But I follow a lot of foreign policy. I know about these things. I study those things. The mood in the Republican Party is not towards foreign policy right now. Uh, there's definitely an isolationist tilt, especially in the Trump and MAGA wings of the party. Is that going to hurt him or not? It's a deal breaker for me, but that's my own personal biases. You tell me, is that going to play at all in this race for a U.S. Senate seat?
5: I think it could. I think it very much depends on how uh, Team Fetterman tries to go after him for it. It, like, Like you said, didn't really play all that much in the Republican primary. I think in a general election, though, obviously, it's a much different atmosphere. It'll be very interesting to see uh kind of how that atmosphere that how that part of his life and how that part will translate into the campaign now the general election where that might be a little bit more uh upsetting maybe to some swing voters, especially in those potentially in those collar counties, if this is an attack that the Fetterman campaign decides to hone in on.
2: One more quick thing since you mentioned it, uh Fetterman had the health scare, went through that. Kind of hard to tell how that a lot of people are like, oh, this is like well, no, that that Fetterman's a different kind of cat to start with. I think there, that would probably be a sympathetic for his base to him, like, oh, he's overcome this. I, I think it actually kind of humanizes a guy who's kind of – and I don't mean this even in a, in a bad way. He's just kind of a weird dude. He's just different. I think something like the healthcare might actually humanize him and help him with voters, but that's my opinion. What do you think? The health and coming out, he's up in the polls right now, which he probably should be with some of the built-in things he's going to have. The health scare and his performance going forward, what do you see happening there?
5: You know, it might depend on when we start seeing him on the campaign trail again. You know, if we get, again, if we get, I think, August is kind of that big month when we're talking about general election campaigns. If, if he's not really back on the campaign trail full time in August, that's when these questions will start popping up again. You know, obviously, uh, heart health, heart issues are nothing to be, you know, uh, nothing to not be concerned about. That's for sure. Uh, And I think there is potentially an issue him here with the fact that he didn't let anyone know about it. I don't think even people in Harrisburg knew about it. Uh, The fact that because the fact is he was diagnosed with it uh, before he became lieutenant governor in Pennsylvania. So it's something again, it's kind of like the Oz and Turkey thing. It depends on how it is you know brought on to and it depends on you know kind of how the oz team then kind of decides to forewarn. because again the health issues are something that if they're attacked in the wrong way can certainly backfire very very quickly if that's something you decide to attack on those are something that those are attacks that can backfire very very quickly
2: yeah and real quick the governor's race Mastriano, is down a little bit right now uh on paper this looks like a candidate you normally Excuse me. On paper, this looks like a candidate that is going to be uh, all kinds of problems for the GOP. I think this is them shooting themselves in the foot a little bit on a winnable race. But, you know, last few years have been weird. You never say never. I'm open minded on it. Mastriano, he, you know, he's, he's not getting trucked or anything. He's down a little bit. But they've also got a thick, thick, thick oppo file on this guy. Did the Republicans blow this one?
5: I think it's very possible. I mean, you know, I've, I've uh, always stated my concerns about Mastriano. I just I don't think he's a guy who can moderate. I don't think he's a guy who can move away from what drove him to kind of this fame. And that is uh, in a large part due to him very much pushing uh, the nonsense that is the idea that there was fraud in the 2020 election. He was a big, big uh, factor in that. You know, and the fact is he he the money game in which is which are big in governors races, especially in governors races, that's key. He this is a guy who's going to get romped by Shapiro and not by just, you know, the Clinton Trump numbers where that doesn't really matter, especially in presidential elections, because there's kind of a a peak where money matters in presidential elections, but in governor elections, money lap matters a lot when you've got a guy who has 13 and a half million in hand. Uh, for Josh Pier and a guy who we believe has around 400,000 in hand in Doug Mastriano right now going into the summer months. You know, that's a that's a legitimate problem, I think, for Republicans. And that's, I think, been an underrated concern is the fact that Mastriano is not a guy who has connections necessarily to raise money right now. And he might not be a guy who the uh, Republican Governors Association might want to spend money on, even in the it's, you know, about a four, even if polls are showing a four or five point race. He might be a problem that Republican, that, that the RGA does not want to spend money on and not save them in that regard.
2: Yeah, and Pennsylvania, you know this well, there is some major media markets. You got money, if you got a money advantage, you can flood a chunk of the electorate uh, in the fall, uh, especially places like Philadelphia, Pittsburgh and uh, the Lehigh Valley, places that you really got to win to win a statewide race. Uh, money doesn't usually show up other than the news items until about you know August, September. I think he's just going to get buried in bad stuff running up to the end of this, and then that'll be that, and it'll be five to ten points. Am I wrong there?
5: I think that that is certainly a very possible option. This is something that I always try and transpire when we're talking about governor's races, that even in wavier elections, governor races have been shown to be uh, kind of like this brick wall towards the waves. They seem to certainly have uh, these governor races certainly seem to have much more focus on local issues. I mean, if you go back to 2018, obviously, federally, Arizona and Texas were very competitive races, but their are gubernatorial races. Uh, Doug Ducey of Arizona and Greg Abbott of uh, Texas soared to reelections by over 15 points uh, in both of their races in 2018. You know, beating an incumbent governor or beating a party where the current governor may be retiring but is popular, it's hard to do. Even in wave years, uh, Republicans are learning that. Michigan, I think Democrats are going to learn. You know, they've they learned that in Texas and Arizona in 2018. I think Republicans are going to learn that in Michigan, and I think they're going to learn in a couple other places as well this year that being an incumbent governor is much easier said than done, even in wave year elections.
2: Yep. Uh, Let's start running through some of these primaries. Joe Zemanski from Elections-Daily joining us. By the way, some guy that runs an elections website might want to do a piece on how the American populace and electorate tends to like to kind of put themselves ballworks up. They like to split Congress. They like to split governors from their races. There's some historical trends to that. might be interesting for somebody who knows a lot about elections to look into one of these days for a written piece. (laughs) Uh, we've, We've had some notable primaries things. Let's go down to Alabama uh mo brooks bless his little heart what there is of one uh he got trucked by 30 points in the end he was endorsed by trump he was unendorsed by trump katie Britt, on paper is you know what you would normally call a a normal gop senatorial candidate she's also young i think she's what mid-40s late 40s only
5: 40 she's only just turned 40 apparently oh my god
2: i mean she she could be in the senate for 40 years she's that kind of a candidate but then Trump got involved. It looks like it shook itself out the way we kind of started. And Mo Brooks is now saying he's going to end his political career. I'll believe that when I see it. But anyway, just real quick on that one, because Trump got involved, people were watching it. We had the, the circus around it. Uh, talk a little Alabama real quick. Also, Governor Kay Ivey and all that mess.
5: Well, yeah, I mean, Alabama was probably maybe the most roller coaster GOP Senate primary yet in terms of kind of the outside influences on it. Obviously, Donald Trump uh, originally endorsed Mo Brooks very, very early on in this race. It was a very early nomination, one of the, uh endorsements, excuse me, one of his first. Actually, this was basically a reward to Brooks, basically because, again, Brooks is one of the frontliners uh, in Congress with the nonsense around. The 2020 election again and again, the uh, pushing of the belief that there is voter fraud in some way, you know, if you look at that, you know, Brooks was the first was the guy behind that and Trump decided to award him with a very early endorsement that did not stop. However, Katie Britt, who was backed by Richard Shelby, she was Richard Shelby's former chief of staff, this is Richard Shelby. She, he he's a very influential and popular guy in Alabama uh, politics. I never counted him out. And Brooks has already, has always had questions around him campaign wise. He comes from Huntsville, which hasn't elected, a, which they, uh, Alabama hasn't elected a statewide official from Huntsville or that Northern part of the state since, 19, since the 1970s. So there's kind of been this curse around the Huntsville area since then that because it's kind of this lesser populated area, it doesn't necessarily culturally mesh in with the other parts of the state. Uh, that those candidates from there have issues uh, reaching out to the broader and wider base uh, away from the area, and Brooks, I think, certainly dealt with that. Obviously, he was unendorsed by Trump as his polling numbers continued to flounder, even with the Trump endorsement. Trump unendorsed him, kind of gave some nonsense reasoning for it. Again, that was mostly surrounding the twenty twenty stuff. But uh, Trump endorsed Katie Britt about a week before uh, this recent runoff. Britt was already up pretty heavily in the polls. All it did was basically confirm that. Uh, Britt was going to be the nominee at this point. And obviously Tuesday night happened pretty easy victory for Britt as we expected. It was called pretty early on in the night for that runoff. And uh, Mo Brooks, as, as you said, we'll see if he, if he sticks to it, but he is in his mid sixties at this point, it sounds like Brooks is going to be taking a uh, forever break from politics right now. And he seems to be retiring uh, within Huntsville to, from politics for a good period of time.
2: There's something with Mo Brooks I can get behind and endorse. May he, may he enjoy his grandchildren. Outside of elective office and God bless him doing so because it's time to go. Bye bye. Uh, our good friend Joe Zemanski from elections-day.com. We're going to run through a bunch more of these primaries. We're also going to look at we got some real big ticket ones coming up. Arizona is going to be an absolute uh, gang fight out there. A uh, couple other ones. Joe Zemanski, Elections Daily, our good friend and election expert right after this. I went back, I to, her went back to her. Tell Joe Zemanski, our good friend, elections-daily.com. If you have not found their website yet, bunch of folks that said, Hey, we can cover elections better than we've seen. They've went out and done it. They're big time. Now they're combined and partnered with decision desk. Make sure you're following. They also do live streams on elections night that are always entertaining. Good folks. Make sure you're following them. You can see his social media there on the lower third graphic. All right, buddy, let's talk through a couple of real quick ones. Um, a race that, Not a lot of national coverage, but you know it because you're there because you're one of these uh, seemingly endless string of uh, uh, George Mason grads that we've got to deal with on the program. Virginia, um, there was a House uh, runoff election. Didn't get a lot of national coverage, but it's kind of tied into Glenn Youngkin. It's almost like the bookend of the Glenn Youngkin story. Just walk people through that real quick for them.
5: Yeah. So obviously Virginia had, uh, they, their last remaining, uh, house primaries on Tuesday night. Uh, the thing with Virginia is that, uh, 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 congressional committees, basically the district committees can choose whether or not still, whether they want to hold a primary, whether they want to hold a convention, uh, in Republicans, a convention method is still very popular in some regards, uh, the Northern Virginia based districts, the 11th, the eighth and the tenth all held conventions, as well as in the fifth congressional district. And with that, uh, because there were no there were no competition for the um uh, third and with excuse me, for the ninth and the fourth congressional district, that left only uh, four contested primaries on uh Tuesday night, uh the sixth, the third, the second, and the seventh, in terms of Republicans and Democrats actually had no contested primaries. They had no big primaries this year. Uh Don Bayer did get a, pr- a primary challenge this year, but Did not end up doing anything. He won in a 78 to 22 uh, re-election bid. But Republican side had more interesting. They had two key races, of course, in those two key seats, the second and the seventh. Uh, These are going to be two. uh, These are going to be two very key congressional races in Virginia in 2022. The second is a Biden plus two seat based around uh, Virginia Beach City. While the seventh is a Biden plus seven seat based around uh, Nova exurbs and suburbs, uh, mainly in Stafford and Spotsylvania counties and then going out to some part of Central Virginia. So it's uh, it's two very interesting seats here, Republicans in the second district. It was, pretty, it was uh, expected they would nominate Jen Kiggins by a pretty uh, heavy amount. She's a current state senator from the Virginia Beach area. That's what she did. She won about 56% of that primary vote. Uh, our closest competitor Jerome Bell, who was a very right-wing individual uh from the Virginia Beach area, got about 26% of the vote then. So again, Kiggins won by about 30 points in that regard. Unsurprising on the night. The real interesting race ended up being the seventh congressional district race. Uh Lee Vega ended up being the nominee there. She's a current supervisor from Prince William County. That's what drove her to victory. She won about 26, she got about a 2600 vote margin from that part of uh of uh, Prince William that's in the district. She won by about 2,000 district wide in the primary. So that's really what drove her victory. There's that home uh, home base race there as she ran against uh, Derek Anderson, uh, former Green Beret from the Stafford, Spotsylvania area, uh, came in second place while State Senator Bryce Reeves, who represents parts of those uh, central Virginia counties and parts of Spotsylvania came in a surprisingly weak third. Uh, you know, it was an interesting race. It was the one to watch. Uh, Vega came out on top. She's a very interesting candidate, uh, only 36-year-old, uh, is a former deputy sheriff, a supervisor elected in a swing, Prince William supervisor's base seat, and is also a Hispanic and is the daughter of El Salvadoran immigrants. So it's going to be very interesting to kind of see how she dynamically plays in this race. Uh, you know, this is about a Youngkin plus five seat when he won it in when he won state law in 2021. So it's a race that could be tilting just on uh, even or even Republican tilting, uh, depending on how this environment comes down to in 2022 when we get to November. So it's going to be very interesting to see right now. In uh, the second, we currently have that rated as a leans Republican flip. Actually, this is one of those areas where Republicans probably got one of their best congressional recruits for the cycle. Uh, I'll be very interesting to see how that goes. Well, Vega versus Abigail Spanberger in that new Seventh District—we consider a toss-up. Two really key congressional races in Virginia. It'll be really interesting to see kind of how those react because these are going to be two very, very key seats very early on in the night in the race for the House majority uh, come November 2022.
2: Yeah, and for folks that aren't familiar with Virginia, everybody knows that you know the DC suburbs and exurbs are dominating Virginia politics, but second to them. It's probably that Virginia Beach, North Fork Hampton Roads area, and that is a the second biggest military buildup area in the whole world. It's a really unique district. It's probably second only to the D.C. area in Virginia politics and far as important. So that that's one of those congressional ristics that matters because it's probably always going to be a competitive or swing district one way or the other, no matter what, just because of how it's built up. All right, real quick, let's get to some important ones that we haven't touched on because we haven't had you in a couple weeks because you're this busy guy doing all this fancy stuff now (laughs) south carolina you know again a race that trump heavily got himself involved in got a split decision uh he clipped off one of his vengeance rod lists uh tom rice but nancy mace came back uh she's kind of a unique personality in the republican party trump came out against her she survived it Uh, That sure seems like maybe, and she's another one, she's young, this sure seems like something that probably sets her up for a pretty successful career going forward if she handles it well, because that's a pretty tough acid test for an early part of a GOP congressional career, isn't it?
5: Absolutely. You know, uh, obviously, well, of course, uh, as you mentioned, he did get his split decision. Uh, Tom Rice in the 7th District actually got beaten uh, without the need for a runoff by Russell Fry. Fry got 51 percent of the vote, so he avoided the runoff there against Rice, who was in second place. Uh, so Fry will be the, the congressman in almost certainty in this uh, about Trump plus seven, uh, 18 seat uh, come 2022. When he does get rid of one of his impeachment votes. However, Mace was a bit of a different story. Uh, Mace uh, did not vote for impeachment, but she was pretty heavily critical of Trump uh, post-January 6th. She did not vote to overturn, uh, try and overturn the results in any of the states that came up uh, in the House. You know, So this was a key race. She was uh, going against Katie Arrington. She was the former candidate in the first district in 2018. She was the one who lost to Joe Cunningham in that seat. Uh, Trump endorsed Arrington. Uh, But really what it came down to was that Mace had a pretty overwhelming margin in Charleston County, which is our home base. She won that about 62 to 37. And then she also won a uh, Beaufort as, as we dealt with multiple times on the um, uh, on the show that night, the issues of making sure which which way to pronounce the, that, that Beaufort County in South Carolina, which is a county just south of uh, Charleston, it was another pretty heavily populated part of the district. Mace won that about by a margin that she won the race by about 54, uh, 46 over Arrington. And that's really what kind of drove her to victory. You know and that isn't be a big thing and obviously tim scott is a name that we we've heard a lot over the last couple of years he's confirmed no matter what that 2022 will be his last go-around uh you know if is someone who's still around you know if scott becomes someone's vice presidential nominee or if he becomes or if he just up and retires in 2028 you know is someone who's certainly coming from that charleston area and that coastal area could certainly potentially become uh north uh, south carolina's next senator and first female senator It's definitely a possibility now. Uh, It doesn't seem like Trump seems interested in going after a post this year. He actually, one of the few ones who he's endorsing against, who he congratulated on his new social site in the post-race of that election there. So it doesn't seem like there's going to be energy from Trump world to go after or past this point. So we're very interested to kind of see what continues to go on after this.
2: I got the answer for that one because South Carolina is, how you doing, President Joe Biden? Really, really, really important if you want to be president. You basically have to win South Carolina for either party. It's probably the one state that both parties have it, probably one, two, or three on the thing. You don't want to tick off the South Carolina voters if you have any aspirations, whatever, in 2024. That's what that was about. And even Trump, who can really go off the handle and not do very good strategically wise even he (laughs) realized, like, okay, we better not tick off her voting base if we want anything to happen in the state of South Carolina. Speaking of which, by the way, Uh, The governor's race, you mentioned Joe Cunningham, it looks like it's going to be him and Henry McMasters,
5: how's that going to shake out? You know, you know, South Carolina is a state that is, you know, just because of the way its population and its voting base work. It's a relatively inelastic state. This is a state that's gone around between like 10 to 4, 13 points towards Republicans in recent years. It's pretty much stabilized at a one of those inelastic states. And that's a word that's tad overused. But I think it actually describes South Carolina statewide pretty good. Uh, we we doubt that McMaster will have any issue here. Cunningham obviously may have some slight bigger appeal than maybe another candidate would in that coastal area of the suburbs that might knock down the margin a point or two. But this is still a red wave year. McMaster's not an unpopular governor by any stretch of the word. Uh, you know, I think this will be a pretty quick, vic- a pretty solid victory for McMaster, I think is the right way to put it. That's for sure. Uh, as we kind of get into that race here and when it comes down to it, it's not really a race that we're going to be keeping an eye on at this point.
2: The rumor is Joe Cunningham knows he's not going to win this, but this lets him build up a campaign chest and tread water. Because like you said, there's the expectation that Scott's going to be coming out and there's going to be an open Senate seat. But if he loses this, that's a couple L's in a row. Is that good strategy on his part? Is this probably going to be his last go around and somebody else rise up? Or do you think that strategy pays off where he can tread water and then go after that Senate seat? That's what he really probably covets.
5: I think, you know, I, I never think back to back. losses well, is a good thing in politics. I never thought it's a good thing. Uh, you know, obviously wave babies, kind of like Cunningham is, you know, they tr- we've seen this before with Republican wave babies and with Democratic wave babies, uh, you know, which are uh, candidates who win a House seat that was pretty decently Republican or tw- I should say towards the opposite party when they win it in midterm year. They then proceed to lose it. Well, usually narrowly by two to four points in the actual presidential year. Then uh, that's basically what happened to Cunningham uh, in that regard. And you know, that is, you know, they do these races where they try and go run a state ride race again, usually in a midterm, potentially against their party. And sometimes it's for their party and it pays off. But in a year that's against their party, it usually rarely pairs off. Uh, I, I don't think this is a move that'll help Cunningham uh, kind of stay in sights uh, after, after this race is done. I don't know if, I don't think it's going to help them very much.
2: Let's project ahead a little bit. Uh, there's other states, of course, and we'll talk about them in due course. I want to talk about Arizona, August 2nd. Uh, This is going to be all sorts of ugly. It's getting, you thought it would maybe ease up a little bit. It actually seems to be, the the stupid seems to be accelerating in these races. Uh, There's, of course, the Senate race. There's the governor race. And we know what's going on inside of Arizona. It's been ground zero for all the election nonsense, mess, and conspiracy theories. We've got active investigations going on. We've got lawsuits going on. It is a big old hot mess. And you've got some really questionable candidates who may actually win some nominations here. How do we parse out Arizona? Because this looks like a dumpster follower from a distance.
5: You know, a dumpster fire is probably the best way to describe Arizona, quite honestly. You know, uh, the Arizona Republican Party, just because of the way it is and how we look at it, uh, has been kind of become a mess over the last couple of years. Uh, You know, Kelly Ward, a former firebrand state senator who took on who was trying to primary John McCain in 2016, took over the party apparatus as chairwoman in 2018. Uh, it has kind of been a downhill slide since then. Can you repeat uh, that
2: real quick? Because people told me, well, they're just giving her a state seat to get her to be quiet and go away. I'm like, no, that really matters. So I hate to say I told you so, but when that happened, I you can go go check my Twitter feed. I got pushback. People are like, no, 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 they're giving her that to get her to shut up and go away quietly and placate her. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is bad. This, you're going to burn the whole party down letting her in charge of that. I feel vindicated there, buddy.
5: Yeah, no, I mean, that's absolutely the case. You know, state party apparatuses are incredibly important, especially when the nationwide party apparatus is not seem interested in getting involved in these races. Statewide party apparatuses are important. and Ward is a nut job, and she is kind of what the cuckoos take over the hen house. So, you know, it has been become a big issue here as, a, as a, the Arizona Republican Party seems more attached to the fringes as Arizona has become a purplish state. That's become a real issue, that's for sure. And, you know, you're looking at it here that it's going to be very, very interesting to see kind of how we go here. Obviously, uh, Kari Lake and technically Blake Masters, even though the endorsement he got from President Trump was more of a Mark Brnovich slapdown than uh, a true endorsement of Masters, if you really look at that uh, statement he put up. But Kari Lake is obviously the danger candidate here, Uh, really from that governor's race, Karen Taylor Robin Robeson. Uh, a, a businesswoman from the area, from the Maricopa area, is her main challenger at this point. This is a race that's gotten really, really nasty uh, in the last month in that governor's primary between these two women. Uh, now uh, Lake is actually being hit hard here as kind of this uh, the issue around uh, gay uh, gay rights and this specifically transgender uh, individuals has really come up again, especially as we've seen uh, issues with drag queens and kind of their role. Uh, yeah, that some people have brought them up in society, that's for sure. Uh, understandable pushback, I think, that's for sure. But uh, you know, you're kind of looking at it here, and uh, there is a recent attack that Lake has been uh, friends with a very well-known Arizona drag queen back when she was a newscaster. And uh, these photos and these Instagram posts of uh, Lake basically praising her, have uh, come up now as an attack. And apparently there's been some slight on the ground rumors that it's working. Uh, obviously the attacks against Lake is that she is a fraud and uh, obviously someone who voted for Obama in 2012 donated to Obama in 2012 uh, there are even signs up in Arizona that. Uh, put Kari Lake next to President Obama's face and say I voted for Obama in 2012 and you know that we'll see if that attack works in Arizona It'll be very, this is a race that's just going to be very, very interesting to see kind of how this all pulls out. In about a month and a half on August 2nd, and you know, like I like we said, this is, this is a race that still has time to develop because that's just how it's going to be in this race is the race has a lot of money in it. And there's going to be a lot of time for this race to still kind of flesh itself out as we get closer to that August 2nd primary date.
2: Does sitting does U.S. Senator Mark Kelly just kind of try to glide above all this and rod this out it kind of feels like that's where this is going.
5: That's that does kind of feel like this is going. And obviously uh, Kelly, who has been a money printer uh, in terms of fundraising ever since he got involved uh, has the war chest to potentially do so. So it'll be very interesting to kind of see how that uh, responses as well when the time comes.
2: All right. Speaking of unsuitable for office, let's go over to the show me state real quick in the time we got going. Uh, Roy Blunt, um, of course, is retiring. Uh, that's a big hole in the Republican uh, caucus. We'll talk about that some other time. He's one of those guys didn't get a lot of national push, but he had a lot of pull in the rooms. Uh, so Roy Blunt is retiring. <laughs> Eric Greitens. My Bad. God, where to even start with this? Uh, I can, of all the unsuitable candidates for office, he is absolutely top of the list. Um, I don't trust any of the polling out of Missouri right now because this is such a race with the dynamics, but just talk about it real quick. There's a lot of history here. Josh Hawley is, of course, the other sitting U.S. Senator. He actually, as attorney general, recommend pushed the recommendation. that got greetings to resign. It was, it was a quote unquote deal. Let's not get into that. But there's a lot of history here. There's a lot of mess in here. Where do we even start to
5: parse out Missouri? Well, I think just to parse it out here is that Eric Reitens is, like you said, very unsuitable for office. This is a guy who has uh, pretty solid accusations of domestic violence against him. This is a guy who also has accusations, what seems to be pretty solid accusations of rape against him. And this is not a, this is a guy who could legitimately, we've talked about this before, we talked about this possibility with Roy Moore in that Alabama 2017 special. This is a guy who could legitimately find himself kicked out of the Senate if he is elected senator, just based on the potential crimes he has committed. So, you know, Greitens is totally unfit for office. Uh, there is no been, been no, you know, magical, theoretically magical Trump endorsement here yet. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk, you know, Vicki Hartzler, who's a congressman from Missouri's fourth district and uh, Eric Schmidt, who's the cur- who is the current attorney general of Missouri, which as Josh Hawley so- showed, uh, seems to be a beneficial stepping stone if you want to become a senator. Uh, right now, uh, Greitens has shown to have a very, very slight polling lead right now, usually hovering around 25%. There's been a lot of calls of Billy Long, another Missouri congressman is in right now pulling around 8%. There's been a lot of calls for, uh, Long to drop out and to endorse one of Hartzler or Schmidt. So that way one of those two can truly grab some momentum, try and jump above Greitens here, but it would be undeniable that he would be someone who could potentially put Missouri in play in a red year. And uh, would just be an all around mess for the Republican Party. I mean, this guy, this guy's a legitimately bad human being, uh, what seems to be a legitimately disgusting human being. And the recent ad he put out uh, about rhino hunting and you know, the R.I. the idea of Republicans are rename only, which Gritens like, so likes to point a lot of fingers at uh, as he uh, tried to knock, as uh, the ad showed him, busting down with a shotgun at a person's door that uh, theoretically could have been a rhino, which was a pretty disgusting ad all in general. So, you know, like I said, this guy's a mess. It would be really awful if this guy was a Republican uh, nominee for a Senate seat in Missouri. This is just a, in general, a very bad human being. And uh, I really hope that he collapses here in these uh, upcoming weeks before we get to Missouri's primary.
2: Yeah, real quick, we only got a couple minutes left here, but I want to touch on it. Uh, Florida doesn't have their primary until August 23rd, but we've had a lot of Florida news all of a sudden. Of course, Ron DeSantis is all over the media right now. He's running for reelection. Charlie Crist, who was, you know, a Republican and an independent, now a Democrat, because he, you know, has to be in elected office in some form or fashion in his own mind. Uh, we've seen some polling. We, we saw a poll this past week that I think is a garbage poll that showed Charlie Crist up by a couple of points. I, I don't buy that one for a second. However, uh, a lot of people watching this one with than I going forward. Uh so the governor's race, and then of course Marco Rubio is also up for re-election against uh val Demings.
5: Just those two races, real quick, in the two minutes or so we got left. Yeah. So uh Charlie Christ versus Ron DeSantis kind of seems to be the path we're going down right now. Uh obviously the Florida Democratic Primary has to go through right now, uh, between Chris and uh current ad commissioner Nikki Freed. Uh but you know, DeSantis versus Chris, you know, Florida's been a tightly contested state, but Chris has a lot of uh Wins pushing back against them. Uh, Democrats do not seem at all interested in investing in Florida by any means. Uh, this election cycle, which is going to be a real problem for them, uh, either Christ or, you know, uh, basically certain uh, Democratic nominee for Senate against Marco Rubio, uh, Val Demings. And again, you have to deal with the Rubio factor. This is a guy who's pretty constantly overperforming in the state of Florida. Uh, he seems pretty well set to do it again. Uh, in 2022, but, you know, this is this is kind of just the way it goes right now. I think the Senate like we said, we have it rated as likely Republican in that governor's race on election daily. We're pretty decently confident in his uh, uh, reelection at this point. Obviously, it's certainly not a sure thing. Florida is a weird state with weird people. Uh, we and I love those weird people. That's for sure. They always hold a special place in our heart. But you never know how they're going to act in these elections. But the fact is also that the Senate is a governor who's above water. Uh, especially in a year that's going for his party. It's uh, pretty rare uh, to see those guys fall off and lose uh, in these type of years. So we're, you know, it's a race that most people, most analysts are pretty decently confident that DeSantis will win the election this year, uh, even if it's against Christ.
2: Yeah, I think you will. And uh, the, our news media friends seem absolutely committed to trying to make him president. It'll be interesting to watch. I'm talking about the people that oppose him, by the way, who just love to <laughs> govern. It's going to be interesting watching them going forward. All right, Joe Zamansky, as always, just a big old information sandwich. You're the man. We appreciate you so much. Let folks know where they can follow Election Daily. You guys, pretty much all your Tuesday nights from now till 2024 are spoken for, so let them know about <laughs> that. And also your social media, my friends, so they continue to follow you and the other folks over at Elections Daily.
5: Yeah, so you can follow uh, Elections Daily at uh, Elections Underscore Daily on Twitter. Uh, we also have our YouTube Elections Elections Daily on Twitter. Uh, you'll see both on Twitter and YouTube. That's where we stream our Tuesday night election night coverage, as well as our Friday night podcast uh, Elections Weekly. Uh, that's me, our editor in chief Eric Cunningham, and fellow contributors and uh, head heads of items uh, Dylan Wade, uh, Dylan Brown, excuse me, Dylan Brown, and uh, Kras Grenitz. So uh, catch us there both wise, if you're interested in hearing more from not just me and my big mouth, but also uh, uh, more a little bit diverse opinions from our other staff members. Uh, like I said, every Tuesday election night and every, Friday, and every Friday night, no matter if there's an election or not, you'll see us live for our elections weekly. So uh, catch us on there. Uh, hopefully you can also catch me personally on my personal Twitter at Joseph Samansky. that's S-C-Y-M-A-N-S-K-I. And it's always, a, it's always a pleasure to come on the Tell and talk to you, Andrew. Yeah.
2: And those three guys, it's not quite left, right, center ideologically, but it's pretty darn close, very balanced. Uh, you know, they got progressive views, they got some conservative views, a lot of down the middle information they hash out. It's a good program, good folks. Make sure to check it out. Joe Zemanski, always appreciate it. We're going to have you a very busy boy on the show the next couple of years, my friend, because you do great work. Appreciate you. Uh,
5: appreciate you, Andrew. Thank you very much.
2: Take care, sir. got congressional questions this is the guy that's got the answers he covers congress for the independent he's also an msnbc contributor formerly the washington post he moves he shakes he gets things done he knows people he talks to people which is what we're going to talk about today uh our good friend eric garcia great to have you back my friend good to be back hey uh i love what you've written in the independent here because let's let's start big picture and then we'll zoom back in for a second let's go People talk about, you know, right now, because we have the congressional handings with January 6th, we just did the gun legislation. We have the Supreme Court stuff with not just abortion, but also a big environmental ruling getting ready to come down the pike. Yeah, Um, we have a few uh, minutes
6: right now, actually, literally.
2: Yeah. What's West West Virginia versus EPA? It's why I'm kind of keeping an eye on it. Uh, Things like this. But this all revolves around the Congress and the Senate. But we talk about it usually in political terms and things like that. We don't talk about the mechanics of how Congress actually works. And that's where you start here. When you're covering Congress, we know about the gaggles. We know about meeting people in the rotunda. We know about the committee hearings. Talk just a minute as somebody that's there. The actual machinations of day-to-day business, there's a rhythm and there's a method to this. And that's a part of a lot of these stories that gets left out, isn't it?
6: Yeah, it is. I think one of the things a lot of people don't recognize is, and I've talked about this in the past, is that the house of representatives for better or for worse has is basically a jalopy it's basically at this point the other the two sides barely talk to each other at this point uh, so as a result that's why you see a lot of this the legislation getting done on the Senate side, because they recognize that they actually need to pass a bill. So for example, the bipartisan infrastructure bill was done on the Senate side and the, uh, the gun legislation was the most recently passed was done on the Senate side. And a big reason for that is because of the filibuster. What's interesting, what I've noticed is that ever since January 6th, there, is, there are a lot of hard feelings on the house side. Um, and of course it was revealed last week that multiple members of the house asked for pardons. On the Senate side, the weird thing is, and, and, and Kirsten Gillibrand has talked about this with, uh, with me, is that like they, for the most part, it's not like anybody's forgiven Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz, but for the most part, they're just, they've because of the way the Senate's set up, they've moved on and they kind of have to work together because there's fewer of them and because there's the filibuster, they had to work together. So. One of the other things I think that's important to recognize that, and so what I, I wrote this piece about Senator Tom Tillis, is that a lot of times one of the things that benefits is that, one of the, at least on the Senate side, there's a real inclination to negot- not let staff negotiate and let, the, and let the senators negotiate among themselves. Otherwise, things break down. And I think that was really one of the things that allowed for both the, the infrastructure bill and the gun bill to get through was that. They kind of didn't let the staff get involved. They kind of just did it, you know, mano a mano.
2: Yeah, and there's one other part to that that we need to touch on before we get into specifics here. You talk about the staff negotiating as opposed to the senators. Um, I know we had our friend Jim Swift on who staffed both the House and the Senate in a previous life for becoming a writer. He's talked about this on the program the yeah. turnover of staff in the house is one of the real driving factors of how the house works because you're running forever election, basically once a year, because it's every two years, the election cycles, yeah. their staff turns over so much Senate, you have Senate staffers that have been there 20, 30 years. Sometimes it's a totally different beast. And when you're talking about effective government, like passing uh, negotiated legislation, the house just has some institution or, or institutional things against them. Whereas the Senate, it's kind of built in to have things work because you got people that are there longer; they're more secure. All that—that's something that you see as a reporter that the general public probably doesn't think of, but it's a huge factor in how these things happen.
6: Yeah, it absolutely is. <laughs> being a Senate, being—you being, being, know—one of the interesting things about it, what well, that I noticed was that during the January six hearings was was the Cassidy Hutchinson um, testimony it was interesting to me is that I probably know like 10 or 15 different Cassidy Hutchinson's or Cassidy's Hutchinson. I don't know what the plural of that is. Uh, but they're, they you know, they're often young. They're often fresh out of college. They're often uh, very rare uh, fresh faced and they not with a lot of experience. So there's just a lot of staff turnover. And just because of the high metabolism of the, of, of the house, a lot of people get run out very easily. There aren't that many. There are some lifers. Don't get me wrong. There's some people who stay there for a long time, but most times people will usually jump over to the Senate side. Uh, there, there's also just like a, a House office is just smaller to manage, whereas the Senate there are plenty of lifers, and there are plenty of there's plenty of people who get things done on the day-to-day basis and who manage their bosses. And then of course there are some, uh, you know, I I don't think I'm speaking out of term. The the Senate is a lot older than the house. Um, And as a result for some of the members of the Senate who might not be all there all the time? The Senate might, get, Senate staffers might carry the load a little bit more. Uh, you know, there were talks about this when Strom Thurmond was a senator that his that his that his staff ran things. There were talks about Robert Byrd how when he wasn't there for the most part toward the end uh, from from West Virginia. So there, so, so the Senate's so. It's not more glamorous, I'd say, but there is more of a, I guess you could say, a veneration of Senate staff because these are people who get stuff done on a regular basis.
2: Yeah. Uh, Eric Garcia, fine reporter, joining us. Okay. This leads us to the Tom Tillis piece you wrote, and we've linked to it in the show notes. Make sure you read the full piece. But, you know, one of our founding principles here is things don't happen in a vacuum. They have it. In a sequence, walk us through who Tom Tillis is, because he's not that well nationally known. Uh, Of course, you and me both have ties to North Carolina, so we know maybe a little bit more than the average bear anyway. But walk us through the sequence, because like you just said, once you get to the Senate and once you're there for a second term, especially because now you got committee assignments and things, you have power, but there's a process to get in there. How did Tom Tillis get to be uh, a player in the U.S. Senate?
6: Yeah, so Tom Tillis, I think he's one of those people who, again, he doesn't emit a lot of. He, he's not on conservative talk radio. Or he's not on conservative media as much as like a Ted Cruz or a Josh Hawley, and he doesn't. And he he as of right now, he's not a chairman or anything of a big committee right now, but he's slowly but surely become. One of the more effective Republican senators. And a part of that is because he got a start in the Cornelius-Mecklenburg area of North Carolina. Uh, for a while he was involved with Lake, uh, like in the area of the river, around Lake Norman, which is incidentally where Donald Trump has a as a as you know property. And what happened is he just moved up the ranks in the North Car- in the local politics before getting elected in the North Carolina legislature in 06, I believe then in 2010 then what happened is of course in 2008 barack obama won north carolina but in charlotte magazine is there's, there's a great profile of him in charlotte magazine from when he was running in for senate north carolina republicans didn't do that badly that year in north carolina so there was this feeling that that maybe they could win so what tillis did is he basically left his job at ibm because in north carolina there's a part-time legislature and he just basically traveled across the state, recruiting candidates, campaigning for them. And then in 2010, uh, Republicans for the first time in more than a century take over both houses of the legislature. 2012, his buddy from Charlotte, Pat McCrory, becomes the governor. And really, <clears throat> at that point, you know, because they haven't been in power for so long, they just ramrod through a lot of conservative legislation. That really gives Tillis the impetus to run for Senate in 2014. And of course he's winning against Kay Hagan. And that was, I think it was the most expensive Senate race at the time. And it was a, it was a blood feud. It was, uh, that was the first Senate race I ever covered. And it was just, it was ugly. It was nasty. Uh, there was a lot of mudslinging uh, until it's narrowly won that race. by I think like only like 45,000 votes. Hagan actually did better than people than the, the, she probably could than like a lot of other Democrats. But it was just a bad year for Democrats. Tillis, for the first term, he really doesn't stand out that much. But what he does do is he really tries to become somebody who Democrats can do business with. He said in 2016, he says, if they don't do criminal justice reform, I'm not ready for another term. And then the Senate Judiciary Committee, he helps negotiate criminal justice reform with Democrats like Cory Booker. And then of course, what happens is in 2010 2020, Demo- of course, uh, Cal Cunningham uh, runs against him, and of course has that uh, sexting scandal. And Till and cu- Tillis, you could argue he he probably would have won that seat because Joe Biden just didn't campaign that much in North Carolina. But the other thing you could argue is that he just got lucky. But depending on who you ask, but what ha- but whatever, whatever did happen is since then he's accumulated a lot of trust and respect, uh, enough trust and enough goodwill from Senate leadership. And enough respect from Democrats that he's somebody who they could negotiate with.
2: In other words, you know, we used to just call this stuff politics, like, hey, he went out and raised for all these other candidates. And now it's his turn. Hey, he's easy to work with on stuff. So he like we have we now have like this new breed of politics where it's so online and it's so party focused and so ideologically focused that he's almost like an old school politician where he just kind of goes and does the job, doesn't he?
6: Yeah, no, he does the job. Make no mistake. He's a conservative. I don't, I don't want to say that he's a Sure. Moderate. I just mean
2: mechanically. Like he, he yeah, does Mechanically.
6: The like uh, there are the people who, you know, uh, to, to your point, he's the last of the dying breed. I think he, cause like, for example, to your point, Senator Rob Portman is retiring this year. Uh, he's another, another, I guess you could say, I think the distinction is not. And Amy Walter has discussed this at the Cook Political Report. Who's like the smartest woman I know in the world. Uh, smartest person I know in the world, probably. There are what I call governing Republicans and there are firebrands. And Rob Portman and Roy Blunt and Pat Toomey, all of whom are retiring this year, uh, are what I call, and Richard Burr, are governing Republicans. They're conservatives, but they care about, you know, landing the plane. Then there are your Ted Cruz's and your Josh Hawley's and your, uh, your John Neely Kennedy's. Uh, who focus mostly on, you know, um, optics. And I think Tillis, one reason why he doesn't earn the ire of Democrats, and one reason why he, why his Democratic challengers don't raise as much money as like your Amy McGrath's or your Jamie Harrison's or your John Ossoff or your Raphael Warnock's, is he hasn't put himself out in the forefront as somebody who does that many offensive things to Democrats. And he... He's not in Senate leadership for now so that kind of inoculates him from democratic outrage but in the same respect I think what it does is that because he cares about governing and he cares about actually landing the plane and not just being on you know uh being on you know Ben Shapiro's podcast all the time uh he he a lot of conservatives don't necessarily trust him so I think that's the real distinction. I actually used to say when North Carolina passed the bathroom bill, that was under Speaker Tim Moore, his successor. I used to say that never would have gone, gone to a vote in the General Assembly if he were Speaker, not because he wasn't you know, opposed to LGBTQ rights. He is, but it's because he knew that was bad for business.
2: Yeah, and you said something key there too, I think, to key in on is with somebody like Tillis, because he's not in leadership, this is. There's always been this this group, whatever the makeup of the Senate is. There's always this floating group, you know, gang of four, gang of six, gang of eight, whatever. There's yeah. always this floating group that's not actually in leadership, but they're the ones getting done. There was reporting that Mitch McConnell basically, literally, told the Democrats, like, "Hey, I can't touch this, but go talk to X, Y, Z, and Tillis." And Tillis was on that list that McConnell told him, was "Like, no, you go talk to them; they'll hash it out, and then we'll go from there." That's kind of not unusual for the Senate, and he's become that kind of a guy,
6: right? There are certain people who, because they have good relationships with Democrats, because they come with states from states where there are a lot of Democrats, there's this feeling that, well, we can get this done. I, the, the other person who is like that is uh, Senator John Cornyn, who again is a very conservative uh, senator, former Attorney General of Texas, and in this case, after the shooting in Uvalde. Um, McConnell basically, he's, both of them, both of them, I should say, sit on judiciary, so that the Judiciary Committee, so this is their, their jurisdiction. McConnell basically recognized, said, you know, he realized he had to do something, and he realized if they didn't pass gun legislation now, then Democrats would try to get rid of the filibuster, and then they do it if they next time they get in the get in the office, and then it's game over. So this was basically his way of saying it. He says, You can't negotiate with me, but you can negotiate with Cornyn, who's a former whip, and you can negotiate with Tillis, who you've negotiated with the past on infrastructure. And that's how the and then, and then basically what happened is from what I understand, is that um, initially they said Murphy and Chris Murphy, who represents Connecticut and cinema. Uh, they were the two people negotiating with Cornett. and then Cinema said, "We need another Republican," and that's how Tillis came about it being the, the fourth guy on this team. And then, of course, there were 16 other senators part of a larger group that negotiated that that yeah. that, 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 that final deal.
2: Yeah, Eric Garcia from the Independent. We're talking the Senate. We're talking tom tillis a great piece he wrote we're going to take a quick break when we come back we're going to get into how that gun legislation actually went through we're also going to talk about some politics uh anytime you are trying to moderate as a republican you're going to run afoul of the trump camp uh he not only went afoul of it he kneecapped one of them we'll get into that in his uh coding reading of madison cawthorn more with eric garcia right after this on Hurt tell yep Uh, welcome back to Hurt Tell. Having a blast talking to our good friend, Eric Garcia. He does great work. Make sure you're following him. Uh, he writes for the Independent, MSNBC, other places from time to time. All right, buddy. We've talked about Tom Tillis, how the Senate works. We walked through how Tom Tillis became. Uh, he's not a shot caller, but he talks to all the people before the shots are called. I think that's probably a yes. fair way of explaining this. Uh, yeah. Let's talk the gun legislation real quick. Let's just set aside the particulars of it because, you know, there. A lot of this was kind of shining up stuff that was already existing. There's some argument over yes. what it actually accomplishes, but they passed something, which two months ago, you would have said that would have never happened. How did the mechanics of this legislation get passed?
6: The mechanics of it are really interesting because I think that there was really this feeling. I, I, think, I, think, I think it's important to say there are a few things I read about this. It was interesting because I remember when the negotiations began. I I should say I've been covering, I've been a journalist now for, you know, professionally for eight years. Um, And that means that I've been covering politics in Washington ever since. So I've been covering Washington's response to gun violence for a long time now. And to the point that I'm just kind of like, this is, you know, nothing's going to happen on guns. And, but the thing that changed, I think. But then, like, I noticed when the negotiations with Cornyn and Tillis and Cinema began and, and, uh, and Murphy, was, there was this general feeling of goodwill. And I think there are three things that I would attribute it to. One is that the National Rifle Association is just not as strong as it used to be. Uh, a lot of liberals like to think of the NRA's power as just the money that it gives to candidates. That's not the real thing. It's the NRA's ability to scare the bejesus out of its members and mobilize them that I think is the real power. But since the NRA's had a lot of money troubles and it's kind of gone uh, and it's you know, tried filing for bankruptcy, that was one thing, is that it just couldn't you know, mobilize the troops. I think the other thing was that Democrats as a whole were unified on this. The last time there was gun legislation uh, for de- uh, in 2014, in 2015, 2013, the uh, four Democrats defected. Now, basically all Democrats, including Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, Sinema was one of the negotiators, they were basically unified on it. The same for the House. I think that was a big factor, and there was a trifecta. So you had a president who supported it, you had a Democratic House, Democratic Senate, and basically all they needed was a few Republicans. And then the other thing I think was that there was a genuine trust. I think that, as I said earlier, McConnell knew he needed to pass something. Otherwise, the moment Democrats get a filibuster proof, like get... 52 or 53 seats in a Democratic majority and a Democratic president, there is going to be an assault weapon ban. There is going to be a raise in the age of 21. So we felt like I need to do this to stave that off and not make it a campaign issue. Uh, and I think that and I think it worked. And I think the last thing was that there had been already a few bipartisan deals in the past two or three years or so there was a bipartisan deal on covid negotiations there was a bipartisan deal on infrastructure a lot of the same players who were part of the infrastructure deal were part of the were part of this so there was generally this feeling that we know how to do this and we can do this so let's do it so th- i think i think that's what, what what led to it
2: yeah and the other interesting thing about this particular piece of gun legislation was The initial people that came out and supported it were all uh, either not up for election or were retiring or moving on or whatever, but they did expand it a little bit. Uh, Our progressive friends aren't going to like this. Y'all just grab your chairs real hard. This is going to be a rough two minutes, but I just got to lay this out there. Uh, When Manchin and Cinema had all that pressure on them to get rid of the filibuster, they both used the argument, no, the filibuster lets us negotiate things. And they, yes. got, they got absolutely racked over social media and campaign ads. They got destroyed online for it. They've got some scoreboards going up now with some, with a, some really important stuff, even for progressives, for moderates. They're, they're putting wins on the board. Does that argument get a little fleshing out now? I mean, they're never going to get an apology or anything, but they're actually kind of getting some stuff done here.
6: Well, what I was, what I said about this at the beginning when I, I wrote about this in the, during the negotiations, was I said cinema had the most to gain and the most to lose from this, because if Cornyn and Tillis walked away, then the immediate thing that people that progressives would say was, you see, she doesn't, she her relationships with the Republicans don't even work out that much. Uh, they don't actually get things done. But if it worked. Then she could go back to Democratic voters in Arizona in 2020. She's not up for re-election this year, she's up in re-election in 2024. She could say, I got an infrastructure bill. I got gun legislation. We didn't need to get rid of the filibuster. So re-elect me. And I think that she has she has a case to be made. That's not to say that there aren't gonna you know, people, maybe people, particularly Democratic primary voters who aren't happy with who are still un, not unhappy with her, but she can make the case. manchin is in, a, of course, in a very different situation. He's in a state where Trump won every county. He has to work with Republicans. Cinema can now say, look, I, I rack up like while AOC gets a lot of retweets and you know a lot of other people, I actually get things done. You could argue that this gun bill was not everything that they wanted. And in the same way, you could argue that passing the bipartisan infrastructure bill allowed for Build Back Better to die on the vine. But she could very easily say, hey, like, I actually do stuff and and, and it works. So she has an argument to be made.
2: Yeah. And the the other thing there is, and we'll delve into this some other time, the Senate is an exclusive club. There's only 100 of them. It is. And even bipartisan across parties, they like to have a say in who they're working with every day. And I think they're looking at states like Arizona and that absolute dumpster fire of a primary they're getting ready to have. And they're looking at Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin in West Virginia going, you know what, whatever comes after that's going to be worse. Let's let's not burn her on this. There, there's definitely stuff like that. that happens in the U.S. Senate and they they think that way.
6: No question. I mean, I, I think that's very. um. I, you know, I'll say this about Mitch McConnell, and uh, I can't speak for the rest of them, but I can say this, McConnell is very strategic, and he does not and he also, McConnell, as much as conservatives may hate him for it, he remembers 2010 when Sharon Engel blew that race against Harry Reid, and he remembers... Uh, I was living Don- in
2: Vegas at the time. I remember it vividly. That it, Whatever you saw in the national media it was three times worse on the ground. It was bad
6: right uh she was just she was just she was unelectable and and then uh and she blew what should have been you know an easy race and then christine o'donnell blew that race in in 20 in 2010 against chris coons and then and then in 2012 you of course had todd aiken and richard murdoch mcconnell recognizes sometimes where he's just like look it might be better for us to hold off on this and that's not to say he doesn't win he probably would love to see mark kelly lose but he's probably looking at what Mark Brunovich is doing and what Blake Masters is doing in in, in Arizona. And he's probably like, this is going to be bad and this will be a headache. And I'm sure he probably, even though he's endorsed Herschel Walker, he probably is looking at that with, you know, some sweater under the collar and it it wouldn't surprise me. So I think that he's, I think that it's, again, you're right. It is very, these are very strategic people and they do like, and the, you know, it would surprise people how much, for example, Josh Hawley and Kristen Gillibrand work together. It would surprise people how much uh, Chuck Grassley and Elizabeth Warren work together, but they do well, on good government stuff. Uh, Rob Portman gets along really well with Sherrod Brown, A, because they're both Ohioans, but B, they also just care about landing the plane. So... So to your point, it is a very professional club. And, and and even, you know, another example, a lot of people, as much as people may rag on him, and I've given my fair share of criticism of him, Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, you know, in 2018, Rubio didn't campaign for Rick Scott, because he liked working with Bill Nelson, the, the Democrat, who was the senator at the time.
2: Yeah, now head of NASA. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a pro wrestling element to the Senate where they, they do one thing in front of the camera and then they go behind the cameras like, all right, how do we get to the next thing? Uh, yeah. Real quick, uh, senatorial power, of course, is not just in legislating. Uh, it's also in picking candidates. We talked about yes. how Tom Tillis made his bones in politics by picking winners and candidates. That's how you build up a base. That also means when it's time to run somebody, that's the guy to go to. Let's talk yeah. about uh, the soon to be former. Thank God. Uh, representative from out around Asheville, Madison Cawthorn. Uh, I called it the code red. If you don't understand the reference, because we're starting to get old, my friend. I'm sorry to tell you, but that's uh, yeah. that's a few good men. That's that they took the you guy know, out. Really- that was the problem. This was a code red. Uh, they, if yes. you go and you understand how politics works, a phone call got made and said, "Okay, we've had enough. Let's get rid of him." Tom Tillis, it turns out, was the catalyst behind that, or more specifically his staff and his office and those deep, deep North Carolina ties. Walk us through that one real quick, because that's an exercise in power when you can take out a sitting congressman uh, just because you've had enough. That's pretty impressive flexing.
6: It is an impressive flex, and I think, so there's the stuff that a lot of people know about Madison Cawthorn that angered people, which was the jokes about the co- him talking to, on that podcast about cocaine and orgies. That was just the last straw. The real thing that heaved off uh, Tillis was last year in redistricting, because every year states had to do redistricting and red, you know, every every 10 years, I should say, and they had to redraw new maps. Cawthorn was being cute, acting cuter than he was. And he decided to switch districts. And run against uh, and run in a district that was going to be made for a guy by the name of Tim Moore, who's the speaker of the North Carolina House of Representatives. That angered a lot of people, uh, because Moore was supposed to run for that seat. He's the speaker of the House, and that was Tillis' successor. Uh, he also threatened to quote unquote primary the hell out of anybody who voted for the infrastructure bill, and of course Tillis was one of the negotiators on that bill. And then afterward, he bragged about bringing broadband to Western North Carolina. And that angered Tillis to no end. Though, and I think what also some people worry is that by him trying to switch to that district that included the Charlotte area, some people thought that maybe one day he wanted to run for Senate and primary Tillis. But whatever, and so he it was also maybe him protecting his own territory. But what? But for a lot of reasons, Cawthorn didn't do the job. It's, you know, one thing a lot of people will not recognize. So Cawthorn, of course, ran against a friend of Mark Meadows's uh, when Meadows went to go become White House Chief of Staff. And, that you know, that's fine to be an insurgent. But what happens is afterward, you usually have to rebuild your rela- repair relationships. Cawthorn never did that. He kept on burning bridges. So that when he needed his friends, he didn't have any. And I think that's ultimately why... It was, you know, one thing after another that finally Tillis and the rest of the North Carolina Republican establishment said, okay, enough. And Tillis said that Phil Berger, who's a state senator, was the one who, you know, kind of motivated him to get behind Chuck Edwards. So that was ultimately the reason was that there was enough infrastructure to take out Cawthorn. So I think a perfect... A lot of people have said, you know, why did uh, Madison Cawthorn lose, but Lauren Boebert didn't? Well, for the fact of the matter is that Colorado has a Democratic governor and two Democratic senators. So there's not a lot of power within the Republican Party to fundraise and, and neutralize somebody. And in the same respect, Lauren Boebert wasn't talking smack about other, Democrat, about other Republicans; She was talking back about Democrats. So that's ultimately what led to it.
2: Yeah, and let's not pretend here this is still some politics involved. Uh, Cawthorn had viable competition in his primary where Bobbert and some of these others didn't. If they had one, they might go after. You know, the reason they haven't done this, somebody's like, well, why didn't they do that Marjorie Taylor Greene? Because they don't have a candidate running with her that could that could win. If they had one, they'd probably do it let's be adults they, they they knew they could beat him and then that's part of the calculus here as well
6: there was already blood in the water he also had multiple law violations for you know bringing a gun to a, trying to bring a gun on a plane and speeding tickets and having his license suspended marjorie there just wasn't there wasn't enough, there wasn't a viable candidate who could run against her in a primary. She had a primary challenger this last year, but, it, I mean, this past go around, but, you know, Brian Kemp didn't get behind this challenger. You know, none of the the, the big power brokers in, in Georgia got behind it. So it just kind of well, was allowed to wither on the vine. So a, a, as you said, it's all about, can this be done? Do we have a good candidate? Do we have all the things lined up? In Cawthorne's case, it just lined up
2: uh eric garcia you're fantastic we love having you on we appreciate you being a regular on hurt tell till we get you back let folks know where they can follow you you're writing this piece is in the independent we'll make sure to link to it please make sure you read and share it let folks know about your social media and everything you got going on my friend
6: thank you follow me at eric m garcia Uh, on twitter you can follow me on instagram at eric m garcia 14 i of course write for the independent i'm a columnist for msnbc Uh, My book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation, came out last year through Harper Collins, and it's coming out in paperback August 3rd uh, with a new afterword about the COVID-19 pandemic, so uh, that is coming out of the paperback, and as always, it's always fun being on here.
2: Yeah, and when the paperback comes back, I already told you, we want to have you on and kind of rehash that because we covered the book when it first came out uh, because those are human interest stories. I'd love to update some of that, so we'll definitely have you on to talk about the book. We will be doing it soon, my friend. We'll put a link in there for that too. All right, Eric. Garcia, you're the best, buddy. Appreciate your time today, sir. Take care. Thank you, sir. Right, welcome back to Hurtel. Oh, O Contributors. She's also at the Reason Foundation looking at the Personal Integrity Project and some policy analysis. Jen Sidorova, how are you, ma'am? Glad to have you with us. Good to be here. Hey, thrilled to have you. Okay. Uh, You've been doing some writing. Let's start kind of big picture for a second. Everybody understands that pensions is a big problem in America, especially on a federal level. We understand pensioners, and that has a lot of different forms from public pensions, even the Medicare system, things like that. You took an angle on this, though, that on the municipal level, and we know there's a lot of cities that have been crippled with pensions. You actually found an example of some good news for pension. I'm all for some good news. We've had a lot of bad news lately. Talk about Jacksonville and the pension system that you wrote about, because it's really nice to see a well-run government and some good news in this front, isn't it?
7: Yes, definitely. So what we focus in the pension integrity project is the state and local pensions. Uh, So not really like the social, uh, not the social security or anything like that, but the local and state Pensions that pay for the public service workers teachers firefighters and police officers within the states and municipalities and so Jacksonville is like is one of the examples of a municipality that. um, Back in 2017 they turned off their defined benefit pension plan for the new hires. And they put all the new hires into 401k style plan. So all of that sounds kind of like a lot uh, all this terminology. But let me try to explain it. Defined benefit plan, the pension plan, is the kind of plan that a lot of public sector workers have, like teachers and police and firefighters, as I've mentioned. And so the way the benefit is calculated is that there's a formula that takes into account the uh, num- number of years that they worked on a, with a particular employer. Um, it takes into the account their salaries and then it's calculated and uh, they kind of get a, a benefit um, each month. So that's how pensions work. And uh, the employer is responsible to provide that pension no matter what. So even if they don't have enough money saved up, they still need to find a way to provide for those pensions. Those pensions are guaranteed by constitutions. Uh, what Jacksonville did, they switched the new hires to 401k style plan. That's more like a, um, we also call it defined contribution plan. Um, that's more similar to what, you know, workers outside of the public sector have, it's a 401k style plan and what that means is that it it is dependent on how the markets do and um the risk is kind of carried more so by the employee than employer um yeah and so um that's what jacksonville did and now uh we see a lot of positive dynamic for them because for once, their credit rating uh, was improved, so they had an upgrade, and now they will have lower interest rates on all the loans they will take out. So all the money freed up will go towards their public services, like uh, you know infrastructure, parks, recreation, everything that um, all the public services that their um, their citizens need.
2: Now, I'm just looking, at, there's a fiscal side and a political side of this. Let's just look at the fiscal side for a second, since you went through the technicalities of this. The numbers are pretty astonishing. $585 million added over $155 million to the pension reserves. Since that charge was put in place, over $715 million has been used to grow Jacksonville economy and invest back like you talked about. That's eye-popping by anybody's standards. Does the public in Jacksonville realize that? I mean, I know we're talking retirement funds and people watch those things, but was there an immediate reaction to people to those kind of numbers? Because even somebody that really doesn't understand the nuts and bolts of that, that's a lot of zeros going on the plus side of the ledger. I got to think people had to be happy about that pretty quickly, yeah?
7: Right. Um, So I do believe there was a lot of coverage of that, uh, both when the reform was taking place. um, And right now I'm not so sure. I don't see as much, of that in the news, um, it's more, it's something more that the public public finance professional would understand rather than the general public, unless they make that sort of connection. Unless the uh, officials go out there and they talk to the press and they highlight. So, and in this particular case, uh, it was actually highlighted in the media. And now that I'm thinking of that, and uh, one of the one of the officials actually mentioned that you know, the freed up money will go towards roads, bridges, parks, libraries, public health and safety. So it will affect the daily life of those communities. But since you brought up this eye-popping number, I have another, uh, another significant number to share with you and the total, um, and that's the total public pension debt across the country, which right now is pushing $1.5 trillion. And that number is really huge. And that's how much money um, these public pensions lacking. So in a way, this is how much less they have than they should. And kind of to give you an other um, visual of that is that the public pensions right now are funded at roughly 72%. So they only have 72 cents for each dollar saved up for those pensions. Now in 2021, because of the very high interest because of the very high asset returns. Uh, that number increased a little bit. It, instead of 72, it, it, it was 80 in 2021. Um, but now we're going to see some negative returns, some negative market asset returns, and it's going to go down. So like that, like if uh, I would say the funded ratio would still hang out around 72, 73. Um, although we had like a, a very good year for asset returns, for market gains. We had a very good year in 2021, but this year will pretty much wipe it out.
2: Yeah, I'm not super great with math, but I know 30-odd percent of $1.5 is a whole lot of money to be hanging in the air on. Uh, Jen Sidavera joining us. That's the fiscal side. You just touched on it because this is a ticking bomb type of problem. Let's talk about the political side of this. Pensions are one of those, in a lot of places, especially major U.S. cities, they're almost sacked or saying people will not touch these. They don't want to try to reform them. What was the political environment in Jacksonville that they actually not only reformed it, but reformed it in a really productive way that only five years? That's a pretty fast physical return on something like this. Talk about the political calculation where they actually got this done when so many municipalities, you can't even bring this up, let alone do actual reform on it.
7: Right, so when we're talking about public pension reform, it does not necessarily have to be as drastic as what Jacksonville did. You don't necessarily have to close out defined benefit plan. In some defined benefit plans in this country, are actually fully funded. So the goal of pension reform is mainly to bring the uh, pension plan to the state where it's not impacting you know, um, the public services. It's not dragging the state or the municipality down to the point when they are having a downgrade, um, of their risk downgrade and it's actually just when whenever the pension reform is all about making a sustainable plan that will make sure that those promises to retirees promises to those teachers police officers and firefighters are actually fulfilled Um, and it's really the goal is to make those pension plans solvent to put them down you know uh, the fiscal solvency path Um, It's not really, the point is not really to shut them down at all, and um, another interesting example of this pension plan, um, not this particular pension plan, but another successful transition from defined benefit to defined contribution was in Alaska, Uh, the reform that happened in 2006, um, where they also put all the new hires into defined contribution plan. It's been like, it's been a while since that reform, and I recently published A working paper that looks at the retention outcomes uh, for the workers, retention outcomes for the teachers. And we actually, what we see is that um, retention actually slightly improves for workers who were hired uh, at the defined contribution for the defined contribution plan.
2: Yeah. Let's ask you this then. Uh, Jacksonville, of course, is in Florida. That's a fast-growing state. There's no state taxes. There's obviously some local things that went into this. So, when you look at the example of Jacksonville, and like you said, that is kind of a drastic example, what is scalable and what isn't scalable from this example? Do you think, as you look, like you said, the rest of the country, this is a $1.5 trillion problem? Almost every municipality has a pension issue of some sort and manner. What is scalable? What isn't going to be scalable as we look at the rest of the country? Do you think?
7: I think uh, one priority that I see, um, one kind of sticking point that I see for a lot of plans is their assumption, um, uh, their, int- their assumed rate of returns. The assumed rate of return is the assumption that they make when calculating um, kind of how much money they're taking in. When calculating that, uh, the assumed rate of return helps them calculate their, unfunded, their funded ratios, their unfunded liabilities. And it's a very important measure because this is how much money they think uh, their assets are gonna return every year. And so right now, uh, the assumption on average is 7%. So they believe that uh, every year their, their portfolio will return 7%. And um, if, you, you know, if you have at all looked at your 401k, and, and then you will see that this assumption is a very high one and it's a little bit unrealistic. I would say even a more realistic goal would be all the way to 6%. And some plans actually like some plans like New York are actually doing this. So this is something that definitely can be done. And it's also a very positive improvement for the plan in the sense that they will just set more realistic goals for themselves. And uh, they're more likely to be back on solvency track, back to being fully funded and um, to fulfill the promises to the retirees.
2: All right, we're talking to Jen Sidorova. Uh She's with Young Voices and the Reason Foundation doing some excellent work on public policy when it comes to pension. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the rest of the country, a whole lot of problems. Like she said, 1500000000000 trillion. She's got some writing and some examples of what to do about that, who's in trouble, who's not. Talking public pensions, one of those things folks don't like to talk about until it's a problem uh, with our friend Jen. Right back after her tell, right after this Welcome back to Hertel. I'm talking about one of them real complex subjects, but the thing is, it affects just about everybody in one way or the other, uh, public policy when it comes to pensions, our friend Jen uh, Sidorova. uh, The reason this affects everybody, and you touched on it lightly, but let's, let's just make sure we enunciate it clearly for everybody. The opposite of what you cover in Jacksonville is true. They made back money. They fixed their problems. That was more money for roses, roads and bridges and firefighters and cops and teachers and whatever else. But we've seen in municipalities the reverse, though. When they don't handle their pension fund, the pension fund really becomes an albatross. And then things like teachers and firefighters and roads and playgrounds and all that other stuff, that's what starts suffering because these pension plans can absolutely eat up a city budget for decades to come if they're not properly managed, can't they?
7: Right. So I think a couple of examples of uh, really significant, you know, kind of a a fallout that was brought up from... Mismanaged pensions, was Detroit a couple of years ago, and then Puerto Rico. So um, both both jurisdictions um, had to undergo significant fiscal changes because uh, their pensions, and this is something that you know as. Pension integrity project, uniform reform. We're trying to prevent. Uh, you never want to go to this point of almost no return when you have to, at that point, make significant, drastic changes. A lot of pensions are in the state where um, you know, with a little bit of tuning, defined benefit plan could work. And uh, this is something that just needs to be taken care of right now. It's it's a priority. Um, and although you know, most policymakers are not going to be. Here, when those pensions, you know, mature, like thirty years from now, when you know the bill will come due, it is still like decisions that I made right now are extremely important. And another thing, the reason that I, why I am bringing this up is because we've seen a recent trend that um, that in a lot of those uh, state pensions, um, what happened was that. Uh, the uh, you know the political goals like the prioritizing green, environmentally friendly, and um, you know social justice goals, um, those sort of investments. So um, has has been taking place. Examples so of that would be like divesting from a gun manufacturer or divesting from an oil producing company, uh, and instead investing into ESGs. And so this was the, this is the trend that's happening right now, and it's quite scary in a way that. Uh, when it comes to, you know, those pensions that you owe to, um, that you owe and you have to pay, what you really should be chasing is kind of sustainable, solid returns, and you should be investing into assets that are very likely that are trusted assets, and they're very likely to bring a stable return, and not really gamble with public pension money. So that's just another thing that we've seen recently, and I wanted to highlight. Yeah.
2: And I think you hit something important on the head there, too, is, you know, this is a data heavy thing. This is kind of a wonky issue, but it affects very normal everyday people, even people that are non-political, because everybody wants to have some kind of a retirement. Um, And this thing projects out 20 or 30 years over the course of a worker's lifetime. So it's kind of hard for people to get their heads around. As you've wrote about this, as you studied it at the Reason Foundation and other places, Do we need to change how we discuss this in the political commentary and on our social media and stuff? The way we've discussed this over the last 20, 30 years doesn't seem like it's a real productive way. Do you think there's a better way to discuss this without maybe getting into all the nomenclature, which kind of loses people, and just talk to them on a human Mm -hmm. level of like, hey, this not only makes your retirement better, it makes our cities better. It gives more stuff to our kids for the next generation. It sets the next generation up for success. Do we need to change our nomenclature how we talk about this issue?
7: Yeah, actually, a couple of years ago, I wrote that op-ed, One to Market Watch, and it talks about why pensions, pension issue is a millennial issue as well, why millennials should care about pension debt. It's precisely because of that, because the money that otherwise could be spent on public services is going, uh, is going towards paying, you know, to the employees who stopped working 10 or 20 years ago which is kind of bringing, bringing up the issue of intergeneration intergenerational fairness. And it's also, like in Jacksonville, it's simply that, you know, you're getting a lower credit score. And like any one of us, like once our credit score, if it goes down, we're going to get built with high interest rates. And if we have a very high credit score, we get low interest rates. It's like as simple as that. So you can even bring this into this human level um, and translate it into these basic issues that we have to deal with um, in our daily lives to explain this issue. And that's what I'm trying to do as part of uh, the Pension Integrity Project and as part of the Voices.
2: Yeah, basically, if you're paying taxes, you're funding a public pension somewhere, somehow, probably a bunch of them is kind of the way to think of it. Uh, Jen Sidorova. Joining us. Um, We appreciate your time. This is one of those complicated issues, but you explain it really well. So even I could understand it. And I appreciate that. I know you're writing at Reason. You've got a list of writing credits that anybody would be jealous of. I know I am looking through it. Let people know where you are on your social media until we get you back on again in the future, how they can follow you and keep up with what you have going on.
7: Definitely. You can find me on most social media and my handle is the same. It's Jen underscore Sidorova. So I'm pretty easy to find. And you can just always Google my name and find my reason profile, your invoices profile and connect me with me that way.
2: Yep. She's got a lot of writing credits. She's doing more media and we were lucky enough to get her here on her tell. And we hope to have you back again soon, my friend. Thank you so much for the time today. Appreciate it.
7: Thank you. Anytime.
2: It has been way, 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 way too long. We keep trying to organize this, and she's always busy, or I'm in the hospital, or some screwing, something's (laughs) going on. But she is currently the holder of the most downloaded episode of Heard Tell of all time. She is a fantastic journalist and on her own right. She has a long list of credits that we won't go through here, but she's legit, folks. She's a great journalist, but we're going to talk about her little passion project she's got going on now. Molly McCluskey, my very good friend. It's so great to have you back on the program. Welcome back.
1: It's so nice to see you. Thanks for
2: having me. Yeah, see you, because we didn't even have video the last time you were on. That's how long it's been. And uh, the itinerations, as heard tell, has grown and developed, which I will say publicly, because a lot of people don't know, you had a big hand to do with. You have given me contacts. You have given me ends. You've given me a lot of really, really great advice. So just publicly, thank you very much for your help so for me kind. personal. No, no, it's... <laughs> I don't know what I'm making this up as I go. You know how to do all this like journalism (laughs) stuff. I'm just, I'm journalist at Jace. I'm just faking it all up as I went too. So it's totally
1: fine. All
2: right. You have this long uh, career in journalism. You are a fantastic feature writer, quality journalist, but you have aimed at something that I think is really cool because, you know, like we do our program. We always call it cultural politics because there's no way to really unwind that ball. It's always part and parcel. Um, You started doing this thing with Diplomatica with embassies and the reason i love it is people's like well what's the big deal with embassies is like hey embassies that's where all the espionage went down for the cold <laughs> war that's where all the secrets are kept these are in historic homes if you like architecture there's politics there's architecture there's current events because every single country in the world has an embassy in the states so if something's going on in the world something goes down to the embassies there's protests there there's support there what got you interested in these because i just love how this crosses so many streams at once
1: Well, I was a foreign correspondent, and I was covering, you know, I was spending about half the year abroad and half the year in DC. And when I was in DC, I would be a diplomatic correspondent and then use those contacts to help me when I was traveling internationally, sources and that sort of thing. And I was covering really difficult topics. I mean, I was covering, you know, food poverty in the Congo, and I was in Syrian refugee camps, and I was covering all these really difficult, soul-crushing, like I would come home and not be able to get out of bed stories because I was just so really having a hard time with it. And decided I needed something fun, just fun and lighthearted to balance it out as a hobby. And so I would be, you know, interviewing ambassadors or anytime I would do a big international trip, I would reach out to the embassy for things like fact sheets and contexts and things like that, which I was surprised to discover was not a lot of Washington journalists were doing. If they were in Washington reporting on the Greek economic crisis, they weren't necessarily reaching out to the Greek embassy for economic stats, which I thought was really interesting and an oversight. So, you know, I'd be reaching out to these embassies and I'd be talking to them and then I'd say, oh, that's great. I want to talk about your, you know, your economics and trade. I'm an economics reporter and we're going to get into that. But first tell me about this absolutely gorgeous building that you're in, because I was just fascinated. A lot of them are in historic mansions that have been repurposed. Some of them are building fully LEED-certified, green, sustainable you know, embassies. And the way that they were you know, living in their buildings and honoring the history of their buildings, but also making it their own culturally was a fascinating, uh, fascinating story to me. So I started this little newsletter and thinking it would just be read by my cousins in California and I'd have maybe 10 readers a week or a month or whenever I could get it out. And uh, little by little, I discovered that the diplomats in DC were reading it. And then they would transfer out of Washington and unsubscribe and then resubscribe from their new posts. And then their replacements were subscribing. And so there really was an interest in this community and this community of architecture and culture and politics that I found so interesting. Everybody else was finding it interesting as well.
2: But it's amazing because one thing, because I lived in Europe two different times, I've traveled around the world. A lot of the older cities, like a London, like a like Berlin or Frankfurt, has a lot of consulates in it because it's a financial hub. They have an Embassy Row. It's like a street. London, you have a street. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's all the embassies are. Getting. We have a little bit of a cluster in D.C., but it's actually kind of spaced out. A lot of it's these historic properties. Then you got like the Czechs, who per- you wrote a story about how they moved out in the woods on purpose just to get yeah. left alone. And then you have embassies switching buildings every so often. You just covered some of these. It's really a unique thing in D.C. how we do embassies, isn't it?
1: It really is. There is the classic embassy row, and that is still the legacy address on Massachusetts Avenue for a lot of these properties. But you know, the French and the Germans are, are way out, you know, because they have huge, massive compounds. Uh, There's a second offshoot of International Circle, which is the newer built for purpose embassies. We were just talking about them this morning. You know, Tilden has a bunch, uh, the Czechs, that's where the Czechs moved when it was still the forest because it is part of the Rock Creek watershed, which is something I've been really interested in exploring is how many of these properties are physically in, like if it wasn't for the national park boundary, these properties would be in Rock Creek Park. They'd be in a national park essentially. So, you know, they're spread out. And keep in mind too, it's not just embassies. You said every country has an embassy in Washington, but there's embassies, there's residences, there's military attache buildings, there's cultural centers. There's, I mean, quite literally thousands. I mean, I know a country that bought up an entire floor of condos for their guests when they come to visit, that's an extra 20 properties. If you look at how many properties and how much physical space in Washington is owned by foreign governments, it's quite significant.
2: Yeah, and then you have cities like San Francisco that has multiple consulates. Seattle's like that too because sure. of the tech boom. Um, it's really a uh, Dallas has a bunch of consulates all of a sudden yes. because of, of a thing. Atlanta's starting to get some foreign intervention. Uh, even my native West Virginia, we have a Japanese office because we have a Toyota plant. You don't think about you know uh, the Ohio River Valley in West Virginia being a Japanese enclave, but it is because we got a, a Toyota factory. These, and plus for folks that don't understand and don't really know this, maybe other than the movies, this is sovereign territory for these countries. This gets really, really complicated, really, really fast.
1: It does. It does. So most embassies have their, or most foreign governments have their main, you know, their biggest presence in Washington. That's where their ambassadors are. But then there's a large contingent in New York because they need UN representatives. And then most countries will set up, as you said, a consulate where their diaspora are or where there's a major economic incentive uh, as a means of servicing that community. I mean, keep in mind the consulates and the embassies really are are businesses within within countries.
2: Yeah. And it's it's just fascinating how these things work. Okay, let's use an example, your latest piece, a long running story that keeps bubbling up. We don't want to just pick on the Catholics, though, because the Southern Baptists have their hands full of the same issue at the moment. Every Uh, religion, every religion, every religion, every it's look. We we've covered abuse on the show. We've had multiple people on abuse and power structures. It's just a magnet for those kind of people. But the man outside the Vatican embassy, talk about this one because people like the Vatican has an embassy. Yes, it's a state, and top of being the Holy See is considered a state. This this story, I it was one of those I actually read twice, just because I had to stop and reread it again. But tell the story of this man. Uh, John Wozniowski, I hope I'm saying that right, was, outside yeah. the Vatican embassy.
1: So John um, is an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse by a priest, by a Catholic priest, from when he was growing up in Italy. He's Polish-born, grew up in Italy, which is where the abuse happened, and then he moved to Canada for a while, worked odd jobs, and then moved to the U.S. And in the late 90s, when lawsuits started bubbling up against the Catholic Church, you know, he realized, hey, I I might actually have a claim. And his intention was really acknowledgement. He hadn't really discussed it, nobody in his family knew. This was something that had deeply impacted his life in many ways, as you know, with sexual abuse survivors and trauma survivors, childhood trauma survivors, a lot of times it's difficult to maintain relationships, maintain steady employment, Um, deep internalized shame kind of guides a lot of decisions that you make in your life. John said he basically married the first woman that talked to him. Um, They have a very good relationship now, but he, you know, was they were together for thirty years, and he knows that he put her through a lot of pain because he had dealt with his own issues. So in the nineties, when these, you know, survivors started coming forward, he he went to the Catholic Church and he said, "Hey, I'm an abuse survivor, and I need recognition, and I need compensation, and I need I I need this to be a thing now." that I'm talking about it and I get acknowledgement on. And, you know, the Catholic Church, as they do with many of these cases basically said, nope, sorry, Um, sorry, uh, this happened too long. If it happened at all, it happened too long ago. There was no way to um, prove that it had been abuse. I believe he was 14 at the time. I'd have to check my article, but, uh, and they said, no, you probably, if it did happen, you probably wanted it. It was consensual. Uh, And by the way, your alleged abuser is dead now. So too bad. And you're out of luck. And he basically said, yeah, you know what? That's that's not going to cut it for me. That's sorry. And so he, you know, he lives in a suburb of Maryland that's close to Washington. And so he started coming out and protesting at the Vatican, which at the time did not have a fence. And I get into that in the story a little bit. But it was just basically an open lawn. And he would come out, and he would stand on the corner and with his signs. And he had flyers made up, and he would hand out the flyers. And keep in mind, too, this was, you know, pre-Spotlight at the Boston Globe, which was 2003, I think, and pre the movie. And so people, you know, did not take it very well. And at one point, he claims a cardinal spit on him as he walked by. And at one point, he said that he was physically surrounded by priests um, and verbally accosted and threatened. And so, but he didn't stop. He came out every day for years and years and years. He's now, I believe, almost 80. And so he doesn't come out every day anymore but he comes out a couple times a week but this was his life and this is 24 years that he's been doing this now and he's a fixture in the neighborhood but the odds of him getting any kind of justice or acknowledgement or compensation are very very slim.
2: You know what struck me about this Molly McCloskey joining us from Diplomatica Global Media What struck me about this is we've covered a lot of protests last couple of years, whether it's Black Lives Matter, uh, January 6th, although that turned into a riot. Now we're finding out about all the underlying things with that. But, you know, started as a protest. Take whatever you want. We've dealt with protests a lot the last few years. That's not what this is. This is this one guy. And it reminded me that episode that did so well of her tell. We talked about where you were out on the reservations. There was a part of your story about the missing uh, women on the reservations where you had, I think it was three or four women just walking down the highway with signs protesting. And it was such a start because that's out in the middle of nowhere, right? And it it was just one of those, this is all they've got to do, so they're protesting. That's what I thought of thinking about this guy's like, this is one guy, this is so different than the media coverage or a mass movement, or it's organized by social media. This is one dude since what, 97, 98 he's been doing this? 98 this is one guy just, he's like, Hey, this is all I can do. And I'm going to do it. And he keeps doing it on a human level. Cause you've covered big stories. You've covered small interest stories. That just struck me on a human level. How did it hit you?
1: The thing that's so interesting about John, he's so painfully shy. I mean, he's at one point as he was talking about his abuse with me, he stopped and apologized and censored himself because I was a woman and he wanted to be delicate and he didn't want to offend me. But the thing that's so, so poignant to me is that John is not trying to raise abuse of all of sexual abuse within the Catholic Church, right? That has been covered. That has been blown wide open. I mean, there was a Chilean priest arrested a couple of weeks ago for child abuse. I almost got into the different cases that are actively pending right now around the world, and it would have been a different article,
2: right? Yeah, the bishop in Australia, there's a lot of really
1: messy And I should also say too, so I was raised in in the Catholic church. I watched, you know, my generation destroyed by this. Almost, you know, at least one person in every family that I knew growing up had been assaulted by a priest. Um, My mother had been abused by a priest when she was younger. So this was a very uh, poignant topic for me. It's a very painful topic for me. So as I was talking to him, the thing that really struck me was he's not on a mission to unveil this worldwide he's not on a mission to stand up for sexual assault abuser uh, abused you know victims around the world he wants somebody to acknowledge from the church that this happened to him he wants somebody to acknowledge and compensate him the way that he saw he sees the gross unfairness of it all and that was what really struck me
2: yeah, Molly McCloskey, diplomatic of global media. It's amazing what you do with these stories, because you start with these grandiose buildings, and all this power. But it always comes no matter what the story, whether it's espionage, or there's there's a lot of lovers and things like that. And there's, it always comes down to just good old fashioned people stories, don't they?
1: Yeah, it's always people. I mean, there's the thread of ghosts that run through all the stories, right? Because so many of the embassies are claimed to be haunted, and so there's you know who is haunting this embassy and what's their deal? Basically, was is a fun is a fun thread for me. But I really like bringing together the history of that particular building with what's going on now. I mean, the Monaco ambassador's residence is a perfect story of that, right? That was, I wrote that during the Trump administration. That was Warren G. Harding's old house. That was the, you know, uh, the precursor to the veterans, you know, the the Veterans Administration. That whole story had so many echoes in what was happening with Trump administration that it was hard. I didn't even have to explicitly say it. It was just super obvious.
2: Yeah. People think Trump was a little uncouth. They should read up on Harding sometime and the stuff he was getting away with. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I mean, he makes Clinton look like a piker. Uh, Molly McCluskey <laughs> joining us. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to take one of those particular stories right out of the headlines. Ukraine, Ukraine's embassy crossing a lot of streams, again, of history, politics, current events. We're going to get into that. The great Molly McCluskey joining us right now on her tell right after the break. <laughs> heard tell we have molly mccluskey of the fighting mccluskey she's one of the journalist people but she's one of the good ones i promise she's got good stuff make sure you're reading and following her uh let's talk ukraine because you covered the ukrainian embassy this is not unusual though because when some world events happen whether it's a diaspora or the you know the expats or just you know the working population whatever the case may be Embassies become gathering points, and that became true when Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. We've been very clear on this program where we stand on that. Vladimir Putin's one of the worst actors in the world. Uh, As usual, the Ukrainian ambassador and the uh, Ukrainian embassy became a focal point for both protests and support. That's not unusual, but that building has some interesting history that crosses some streams again, doesn't it?
1: That building does have some history. So that building is the site of the dinner that George Washington held when he was trying to convince Washingtonian landowners to basically give up part of their land to build uh, the nation's capital and move it from Philadelphia. And so that building, more than really any other building in Washington, I mean, top five maybe, is one of the oldest and one of the most historic and one of considered the most critical to Washington history
2: yeah and uh something our lawyer friends one of the most important foundational legal cases marbury versus madison that for folks that don't know that basically established the supreme court and judicial review one of the most important parts of our separations of power especially on a day like today we're recording this on the friday when the dobbs decision and yes we're recording this as dobbs drops on purpose so we don't have to talk about it um Mad- marbury versus madison is one of the foundational parts of our government and that touches on that building
1: Yep. Marbury was one of the owners and residents of the, of the house. Uh, he lived there for quite some time. He wasn't the builder. That was Forrest, uh, but he moved in after Forrest and was one of the people that was at that dinner that helped decide that, that the nation's capital was going to be in, you know, at the time it was basically Georgetown um, and named after the British king and that it was going to be here in D.C. Otherwise, we'd
2: also be in Philadelphia. Yeah, well, who wants that? I'm kidding. Philadelphia. I've lived in
1: Philadelphia. It's a great city. I love it. As long as the
2: Eagles aren't playing and winning and or losing either one, then you got to kind of watch yourself. And and it's a horrible airport. I'm sorry. It just says I've flown all over the world. I'm an air transporter by trade. It's a terrible airport. One of the cool things about this building though, is you actually have an old photo of it, which a lot of these buildings for whatever reason, they didn't photograph them that much. I love this quote though, from the historic houses of Washington, DC. I'm not sure the date on this you can tell me, but it said, quote, one of the worst looking, most dejected buildings in George, that's georgetown with a hyphen for some reason at the present day is 35 3350 m street a structure certainly deserving better treatment than it has received the (laughs) photo of it 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 looks like something out of a spaghetti western it's black and white with wood frame door i mean it does look you you could never tell that was in washington dc i don't know what year that photo was but that's kind of one of those cool things because for whatever reason a lot of these buildings they didn't really document the history as they went along they figured it out later But this one you got that picture and it is kind of a sad state of affairs
1: it's i mean it's rough right it's it's a rough building it almost you know collapsed at one point from disuse and disrepair it was the site of nightclubs for years and concert halls and you know they were renters right these nightclubs came in and rented the place and you know didn't necessarily invest in the upkeep of it uh, it, at one point, it was purchased by a development company that held all these grandiose plans for it, and they went bankrupt. <laughs> so the building really had, you know, it's amazing that it's still standing, essentially.
2: Yeah, I love this list of names that it held as it was a nightclub. It was, and I'm quoting here Apple Pie, Casablanca, yeah. Smokey's Groovies, Julie's. And then the exact quote here is it's a poor cousin to the cellar door. The reason I key on cellar door, of course, is because that's the legendary spot where John Denver met the couple that wrote country roads and they went back to the apartment and banged out a song that was about Maryland that we have co-opted and claimed as our own. All right. That's not what <laughs> the fact for today. Cellar door. Look that one up. Um, but modern day, let's bring it up to the modern. This is not unusual though. Something like Ukraine happens, the Ukrainian yeah. people and people that more importantly, Americans who want to support a foreign country, the embassies is where they usually go do that. There's a lot of historical background to that, and that's probably going to continue. Why is that, and what's the history to that?
1: So, embassies have always been a place where people can go and gather. I mean, when the Lebanon, when the Beirut explosion happened, I mean, my famous, now famous Twitter thread that's been kind of echoed around the world about the, the Syrian man lighting the candle at the Lebanese embassy during the, after the explosion, right? Um, during apartheid in South Africa, my friend's dad kept getting arrested for protesting apartheid outside the South African embassy. I mean, it's a way to show either support or protest for the country's policies. You can cause enough ruckus that the, the message gets not only to the US government, but back home to the, to the country's government that you're protesting. It will always be a thing. I uh, can't imagine it stopping at any point. Russia has received numerous protests. And keep in mind, those protests kind of run the gamut, right? So they're, they're your standard candlelight vigil protests, your signs and chants protests. Then there have been acts of violence against embassies, which we have seen, right? The, How you doing,
2: everyone? Um, I'm talking about you, Turkey. <laughs> I'm just, hey, we, yeah. we name names here. The Turkish, they they literally so, had a street fight. I mean, yeah. And this was oh, just they, a couple of years ago.
1: Was so, Turkey, the residence, which is where that happened, is an incredibly historic building in DC that I won't touch uh, because it's, you know, it's a place where music was integrated in Washington. Because while segregation was still, you know, the law in DC, the sovereign territories, as you pointed out, did not have to follow those laws. And so the Turkish ambassador's residence started holding integrated um concerts right which is incredible it's an amazing story but it's also the site where the turkish president came and ordered the assault of american citizens on american land they weren't on the, the territorial land of of the turkish residents and basically got away with it and there was no consequence i think one or two diplomats were expelled as pro forma but so no so that's that's one of those things where i'm kind of you know i'm staying away from that one for a little bit
2: yeah i don't blame you molly mccluskey this is such a wonderful thing you've developed here and you just rebuilt it from scratch with a hiccup uh even <laughs> even professional journalists run into the game i i've i tell yes. our young voices folks that we mentor all the time i was like you gotta understand the internet's like the gold rush the saloons and the dancing girls and the liquors actually making all the money and that is web hosting and web yes. designers and the people <laughs> that are charging you money to do this that's who's actually making the money you're not gonna make money uh, so you had a little hiccup, but I'm glad you cleaned it up. Uh, let folks know where they can find it, diplomaticglobal.com. Uh, We're going to link to it in all the show notes like we do, Diplo Global on the Twitter. Let folks know where they can find it, how they can subscribe to it, and how they can support it, because I absolutely love it. It's wonderful stories, of nothing else. Plus, like we said, this checks a lot of boxes for if you like history, politics, current events, this is for you.
1: Well, thank you. And I think one of the things that I'm really trying to do is in addition to opening the doors to embassies for folks is to have something fun i mean we've had years and years of just drag terrible news especially on all of the topics that i cover right climate change and migration and social justice and urban planning i mean every possible thing feels like it's just going terribly wrong so i wanted something fun and informative but it has transitioned from a newsletter to a solutions focused newsroom and for me, that's twofold. One, I want to physically open the doors of these properties to folks that may not know. If you didn't grow up going to embassies, if you didn't you know, intern on the Hill in, in college, as I didn't, you didn't, you might not know all of the cultural resources and the photography exhibits and the musical performances and all of the amazing things that these embassies are offering free into the public. And so I want to showcase those. But as I was spending more time at these properties during the pandemic, I was realizing how much physical land they have, how much property, how many acres. I mean, Twin Oaks, the Taiwan estate is 18 acres. That's larger than President's Park with the White House. I mean, when you have that much land in a city like DC that has transit challenges and housing challenges and, and, and all of these issues, what is your responsibility when you own a huge, multi-acreage legacy property like that? And not to just call out to Oaks, so they're doing a lot of great work, but, you know, all of these big, big properties, it was really something that I started thinking about in terms of embassies are satellites of their home, op- of their home countries, but what if we started looking at them collectively as a micro city? And in some ways that was really very similar to my start in journalism as a small town reporter in Alaska, right? Where if you, reported anything in my town of 800 people and somebody didn't like it they were going to come knock on your door and have a conversation with you about it and that's really how i've the approach that i've taken with reporting on these embassies is that there are neighbors you know we are their neighbors we all are coexisting let's talk about what that looks like let's showcase best practices let's talk about what folks can learn you know from one embassy to another about how they're physically managing their land
2: so, what you're saying is, we need to give RFK to a r- responsible country. Um, <laughs> that's a that's a DC joke. Not <laughs> will uh, I think we should give over RFK to DC Parks and
1: Rec because they're awesome. And they ought
2: to do, nice do something <laughs> between that and the armory. You could do something. Man, that's a $2 oh billion dollar piece do you know how of much property. If there's
1: food we could grow in Washington,
2: uh, have a decent state. All right, Molly McCluskey. Let folks know where your social media is so they can follow you and sign up for the website real quick before we got a kill.
1: Yeah, I'm Molly E. McCluskey on Twitter. I'm Diplo Global on Twitter. I'm Embassy Calendar, which is just the listing of public diplomacy events that are offered free into the public. DiplomaticaGlobal.com is the website. You can sign up there. You can certainly donate. There is a support page if you'd like. At this point, all subscriptions are still free. And I do occasionally organize outings, like I'm taking a group next week to the former residence of the Ambassadors of Spain, which is the Spain cultural office of the embassy.
2: Yep. And uh the Ordinary Times crew is doing their meetup in DC over Labor Day weekend. They may put okay. you up on some of that. Yeah, please do. So uh, I won't be there. I'll be having surgery right around there. But that's how it Molly McCluskey, we will do this sooner and frequently and more often because it's been far too long, my friend. Thank you so much for the time today. You're wonderful.
1: Thank you so much, Andrew.
2: Have a great day. You're the best. He's back. It's been a few minutes, but we love having him. Real sharp guy here. Uh, goes to Georgetown Law working on Juris Doctor because he's all smart and stuff, but we always enjoy having him on the program. Travis Nix from Young Voices. Welcome back, buddy. Good to see you.
8: Good to see you. Thanks for having me back.
2: Yeah, we uh, we were going to talk to him a couple months ago, but uh, Jay uh, retired from Villanova and we knew he was sad. We needed to give him a little bit of time because a Villanova fan. but that's okay, buddy. Uh, have you recovered and are you doing well, sir?
8: Uh, Yeah, that was a rough one, but I have recovered. Kyle Neptune's a great basketball coach. Um, And, yeah, ready to talk some taxes with you.
2: Yeah, I miss the old Big East, dude. Of course, I'm a West Virginia guy. Uh, I miss the old Big East. Those those were fun fun times, but I think Villanova will be just fine uh, going forward. Okay, let's talk a little taxes, though. Um, You got a story in the Wall Street Journal. Congratulations. That's a good job. But... (sighs) Let's start big picture and then we'll, we'll come back down. Why is it, and I know it's partly human nature, I know it's partly politics, I know a lot of it's probably just rhetorical laziness because you just kind of get in ruts and say things. What is it with tax the rich that we just go to over and over and over again policy-wise? Both parties do it. Uh, the left's probably a little bit more guilty than the right, but the populist right has kind of gotten on this thing too now. Why does folks go to that tax the rich button every time they want to do a kind of what we call a cheap pop when it comes to policy discussions about taxes?
8: I think one of the main reasons that we see this happen is our tax code is just so complex. A lot of people don't know what wealthy people actually pay in taxes, for example, because um, we have withholdings of people's salaries from people's paychecks. Nobody really knows what people pay in taxes because the government just takes the money straight out of it. So um, we just have a very complex tax code. And people just don't understand, especially with corporations, all the good that corporations do in terms of making investments, investing in research, all these investments that over time grow the economy, put uh, more money in people's paychecks by making workers more productive, all of these are activities. People, businesses can write off of their taxes, and that's good. And that lowers what like, businesses pay in taxes. It's not cheating, but it's just that people, a lot of people just don't understand um, that most write-offs that people do that lowers their tax burden is actually good for society, especially on the business side.
2: Now, one of the examples of that that we hear all the time is they'll pick such-and-such such rich person or such-and-such such, uh, major company and go, well, they didn't pay any state taxes. Or they, they didn't pay any income taxes. Um, just kind of break it down because we always want to turn down the noise on things. Yeah, that's technically true, but it's more complicated than that, especially if you have a, a national or especially an international company, they pay a lot of different kinds of taxes. So yeah, you can say, well, they don't pay this one kind of tax. They probably are paying that somewhere else. Just walk us through that because that's kind of the soundbite that people will jump all over when we have this debate, isn't it?
8: Yeah, so I'll start with like corporate executives. A lot of times they go, oh, Jeff Bezos isn't paying anything in taxes. Well, that's because he's compensated in stock and you're not taxed on your stock until you sell it. So as long as he's getting Amazon stock or stock of whatever company, he's not taxed on it until he sells it. That doesn't mean he's also paying, his company pays a lot in payroll taxes. They pay a lot in state corporate taxes. Some some years they pay federal corporate taxes. And if you want to, let's say, tax stock as soon as Jeff Bezos gets the stock, that would have disastrous economic effects because it would prevent or it would discourage people from investing in startups, investing in all types of companies that eventually hopefully grow and produce a lot of good paying American jobs.
2: Yeah, Travis next joining us. The other side of this, just to play devil's advocate for a second, and I'm sympathetic to this view, too, is part of that complicated tax code that you're just talking about, though, is that does make enforcement hard, number one. And number two is it makes it hard to explain it and makes it look uneven, even when it's working correctly. So folks do have a legitimate gripe here of going, well, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't look fair on paper. Isn't part of this, too, is the tax code is so complicated that it's hard to enforce and the average person just doesn't understand how it's enforced, that's an accountability issue that's also part of the policy discussion we ought to be having, isn't it?
8: Yeah, exactly. I think one of the major goals that politicians from all sides of the aisle should be having is how to simplify the tax code, which will then increase economic growth if you do it correctly, by eliminating distortions, getting rid of favors that certain businesses have over over others. That, um, that helps the economy and will increase economic growth and also help um, the IRS hopefully get some more, collect more revenue and go after the few people and companies that do cheat on their taxes.
2: Yeah, Travis next joining us. Okay, let's talk about the current president, President Biden. There's two basic ways to affect tax policy, legislatively and regulatory. Uh, Legislatively, we understand it's a midterm year, there's a lot of big ticket items going on. We've got guns, we have the abortion debate, we've got Um, We're going to have a uh, government shutdown theater again this fall. That stuff's over. There's probably not going to be any tax legislation this year, at least with this Congress. So that's off the table. So walk us through it slowly, because the other part that folks don't understand is how much regulatory can be done with taxes. You're talking about this Section 901 change that President Biden and his Treasury Department has pushed through. Just kind of slow walk us through it because regulatory tax changes are more immediate other than court challenges and things like that and people don't really pay as much attention to them as due to like trump's tax cuts like you know the stuff with the clinton era just kind of walk us through the difference between those two things and then why you got into this section 901 thing yes
8: yeah, so in terms of regulatory tax policy congress they're not tax experts the tax experts are in the treasury and irs so what oftentimes congress do, does is they legislate in very vague, broad terms and they go, I want our international tax system to look like um, this. And one portion of our international tax system is we have foreign tax credits, which companies, um, when uh, US shareholders of foreign companies, um, when the foreign corporation pays tax in whatever jurisdiction they're operating in, then the US shareholder, when they have to report their for- that foreign corporations income on their taxes, they get a dollar for dollar credit for um, the tax that was already paid. So that way corporations aren't double taxed. That allows um, income and revenue to move freely across borders, which is generally good and productive for the economy. And what the Biden administration did was they narrowed these foreign tax credits. They basically said that foreign tax credits, it's only available to corporations, um, foreign corporations that have a tax treaty with the U.S, and that excludes a large portion of Latin America, many Latin American countries, including Brazil, Argentina, Chile, do not have foreign uh, tax treaty with the U.S. And the, the U.S. basically said, or the Biden administration basically, treasury put into change the regulation and said that there the foreign uh, country's tax system has to have many attributes as the US tax system. Um, this includes provisions like interest deductibility. So if a corporation has debt or they finance investments through debt, they have to be able to write off the interest of their debt. So that's a big issue, for example, in Hong Kong right now. Hong Kong does not allow interest deductibility for foreign corporations, so that would possibly limit these foreign tax credit um, from U.S. Uh, companies operating in Hong Kong, and therefore they would then be double taxed and not be able to invest as much in Hong Kong and possibly move their headquarters over there.
2: Now, um, uh, Travis next joining us, Young Voices contributor, smart fellow, glad to have him back. We're talking tax policy. There's one thing in here that caught my attention and you touch in on on your piece, but I don't understand this the way you do. So just explain it to me like I'm five for a second. It seems to me that maybe there's a little bit of a failure in how this uh, regulatory policy was written. And you touched on it in your piece because it talks about income taxes in other countries. Income tax is kind of it's not unique to America, but the way we do it is pretty unique in the world. Most of the world doesn't do it that way. Of course, they have different social systems, they have VAT taxes, they have things like this, especially in places like Europe and South America. Isn't that kind of a bad way to view the taxes of the world? Because one is, when you're talking tax policy, it's like other policy like guns or something like that. The specific wording really, really matters. And saying income tax, and you touch on it in your piece, that's probably not the best way to go at even if you agree with what they're trying to do. Because that's kind of an American concept that you're placing on foreign countries that don't do it that way. Uh, is am I way off base that? Because it just seems odd to me.
8: Yeah, I mean, these regulations—they were very hastily proposed and very hastily created—and there's definitely a lot of vague and poor wording on it that just does not address everything. Um, for example, as like we were talking about, um, one of the big in international income tax, there's a big principle of if you're moving money or doing a deal with one of your subsidiaries, you have to basically deal with your subsidiary like it's a third party. It's called the arm length principle. And in the regs um, for this income tax definition, it's basically said that you have to basically include this language of arm length principle in the regulations. Now, Brazil, they don't have that. It doesn't explicitly say arms length principle. But they basically operate that way. Their tax system is very new, has moved in recent years very closely towards that. So right now they're getting penalized in Brazil and any U.S. company that operates in Brazil is potentially penalized and will be double taxed just because Brazil's tax code does not specifically say that, even though that they are essentially following it. So that's, a, that's an example of just poor definitions and not really understanding how the rest, how certain countries operate and the terminology
2: that they use. Yeah, Travis, thanks for joining us. Um, You use Brazil as an example here. Brazil is an interesting case study. You know, 10 years ago, they were kind of the poster child. A lot of people were talking about, you know, countries on the up. They've had a lot of economic turmoil since then, I just yeah. use them as a little bit of an example, though, because they're they, we can extrapolate that out to other countries when we're dealing with a country like Brazil, that is a very big dynamic economy, but it's having a little bit of trouble in recent years. How would this kind of a tax policy affect them and how would it affect us and how does it also affect us politically when we try to exert influence with something like the current administration there that's been, you know, a little bit off the rails on certain things that matter to Americans?
8: Yeah, so I think one of the biggest ways that the U.S. should try to influence the world is filtering economically. So we need businesses operating in Brazil, in Argentina, in Chile, our closest neighbors down in South America, countries where China is investing billions and almost trillions of dollars a year, a year and over a decade. And China's influence has grown strongly in South America. We should definitely be very concerned about that in terms of how it affects the US. Um, so when a company's double-taxed um, because of the elimination of a foreign tax credit, it basically has two choices. One, it can stop operating in that country, close all of its foreign subsidiaries, divest, sell them off, the potentially Chinese companies, potentially European companies, um, who they have better tax laws and would allow um, a foreign tax credit without double taxation. Um, and that that would obviously lessen American influence in South America and increase China's, probably. Um, or um, the company can um, basically move their headquarters from the u s to a different foreign country. It could be even like the Cayman Islands, a very a tax haven essentially where then double taxation is not an issue at all because you don't pay um, income tax. And that's obviously bad for the US worker because it would uh, decrease the amount of jobs available in the US and potentially lower wages, stop that free flow of capital and money across borders, which would depress the world economic growth over time a little bit, including the US economy. So we would just not grow as fast and we would lose influence uh, within the rest of the world.
2: Yeah, Travis Nix joining us. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to continue to talk tax policy, uh, tax the rich, both the rhetoric and the policy. More with Travis Nix on her tell right after this quick break. back to our hurt tell all right we're with travis nix we're talking a little tax policy he's got a great piece out in wall street journal it is linked in the show notes make sure you read it in its entirety um i like to take something complicated and try to break it down something simple so tax the rich sounds good evil corporations that sounds good um bezos has enough money to give x amount of money to everybody in the world and he can still uh, be the richest man in the world i heard that about bill gates i heard about carlos slim that's that's not a new joke it's just he's the new guy here's my thing when you start explaining this as double taxing even the average person can understand well wait a minute if you're getting double taxed that doesn't sound fair is some of this just a rhetoric and nomenclature problem where we we house it one way of you know rich corporations millions and millions of dollars instead of saying well, wait, double taxing something is pretty much always wrong. Like that's just that just doesn't sound right no matter who you are and you don't have to know economic policy. Should we be changing our nomenclature and our rhetoric a little bit on some of these things? Because that makes more sense to me than you know all the policy stuff in the world. Maybe it would other people as well.
8: Yeah, definitely. I think um, rhetoric has a huge place in tax policy in defeating bad ideas. Frank once famously um, coined the term death tax for the estate tax. And the number of states with a death or estate tax has decreased significantly um, over, the, over the past decade, because and decades, because when people hear the word death tax, they think tax when you die. That's unfair. Um, and the estate tax is very economically harmful for family farms and um, fam- familial wealth. Um, and so, like that's why where rhetoric has a very important role in tax. Um, Republicans should get better at using very good rhetorical tools like like double tax, like I'm saying, um, to defeat bad tax policy ideas. But unfortunately, a lot of the smart tax people that are in this world, and there's a lot of them, um, they get very technical when they talk about taxes, and they just kind of forget how to describe it to the average person and do it in a way that understands how harmful some of these ideas
2: are. Well, let's 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 flesh that out for a second, because we talk about things like deficits. We talk about wasteful government spending. We talk about, you know, uh, unaccountability in government spending and in government in general. And we can you know pound that pulpit all day. Talk just big picture for a second, though, because if you're going to do proper budgeting, if you're going to have a fiscally responsible government, all that is foundationally relying on the tax code, because that's the government's primary income. Just kind of walk folks through, because I think sometimes we we forget the basics of economics and the basics of government. Just walk people through, like the tax code is not just foundational for income. It's foundational for how the entire government works. And if you care about functional, efficient government, you've got to have a tax code that works and you've got to have it enforceable and you got to have everybody on the same page as to what it is, right?
8: Yeah, so foundational principle, taxes and spending should be related. Unfortunately, the federal government every year moves farther and farther away from that. But the idea is um, when you budget at the beginning of the year, you need to be able to predict accurately and forecast how much revenue you are going to take in. And that requires a stable tax code, a stable tax code that doesn't change that often that you're able to predict. Um, In the Biden, this uh, double tax um, foreign tax credit proposal it moves us completely away from that because now corporations, they're talking about, you know, moving overseas, divesting of uh, foreign investments. Um, they're meeting with the Treasury and they are very worried about how these regulations are going to affect them. And depending on what they ultimately decide, that lowers the tax revenue that's coming in from um, their shareholders, from their corporation. And that makes it harder to forecast for budgeting and then makes it uh, just um, completely disassociates spending and, and tax revenue completely and we get farther and farther from the ideal system.
2: Talk about the sponge principle for a minute because, and there's different words for this in tax policy, but uh, the way it was explained to me when I was a kid was it's the sponge principle. is like, look, when you go to crack down on companies when it comes to taxes, you're only going to squeeze it so much and eventually that's just going to run out everywhere and you're not actually collecting it and cleaning it anymore. It's just going everywhere these companies have fleets of lawyers. They know this stuff. They can go overseas. They can move. They can do tax havens. They can change countries. We see that going on with the EU Brexit thing right now. Um, talk about that is like there is a limit to this stuff. So people can say tax the rich, but there that's a two-way street because the rich have to, you know, especially the rich that have means, they have to consent to the taxes or they'll just move somewhere else. There is a fairness two-way street policy here that doesn't get talked about a lot, isn't there?
8: Yeah, I mean, these companies, um, their executives are highly mobile. They can, if they believe that they're being unfairly targeted by an administration, and I think this is a clear example of um, corporations or foreign subsidiaries operating in Latin America, they're being put at a huge disadvantage here because they're being double taxed. But if you just operate in Europe, you're not um, double taxed um, because uh, they have a tax fee. And so they, they feel like they're being very treated unfairly and they might just move um, and go to a tax haven or something like that. They have the means to be able to do that. And that's something that the administration has to remember and basically not unfairly target certain companies for operating in certain countries that just don't do their tax system the way we want them to do.
2: Yeah, Travis next joining us. All right, we've been beating up on the Biden administration here, but uh, let's be fair here. The Republican Party and the wider right, frankly, I just haven't heard them talk a lot about tax policy lately. Now, they, we'll still get lip service about, you know, tax cuts or cutting the rich, t- cutting taxes, that sort of thing. I just don't hear a lot about it. I know we have a lot of cultural issues going on. I know there's, you know, political upheaval on other fronts right now they used to be just bread and butter stuff for the right to talk about tax policy. I just don't hear it that much anymore. Do you hear the same thing? Do you find that frustrating?
8: Yeah, I think it's very frustrating with the new populist right and the cultural war that they seem to be wanting to wage with the Democrats. They think that that's what it helped them politically. And they just ignore um, these important tax issues and then what, what do we see people voting on right now? They're worried about rising inflation and an economy that seems to be moving closer to a recession every single day. Tax policy is a tool that we can use to get us out of that, put more money in people's products, pockets um, and boost the economy and they just don't feel they're not willing to fight that fight right now. And that's a shame, especially that the front tax cuts that everyone talked about, they're gonna expire at the end of 2025. So whoever wins the midterm this cycle and eventually the White House in 2024, they'll decide what our nation's tax code will look like. Um, And they should be drumming that issue and beating that drum and they just aren't. And that has wide consequences because the American people don't understand how much their taxes will be could be raised in 2025 if you don't have politicians who are willing to fight for lower taxes.
2: More importantly, since we can't get them focused on that, is there the way to deal with the regulatory state is through legislation. I really don't see any appetite for that whatsoever. And like you said, there's some time bombs going off. The taxation time bomb is 2025. We know Social Security, it's 2026. We've got some really heavy legislative issues coming up. And the way our system's set up, we should go through the legislative process to deal with regulation. We're not. This program from Biden, and I'm not picking on him because Trump did it too, Bush did it too, Obama did it too, Presidents are going more and more to the regulatory agencies to push this stuff through, and it's just piling up, piling up, piling up. I, How would you throw the pitch of like, hey, the legislative process has to take back control of these policy issues, even though they're not real sexy, they're not getting you know clicks, they're not getting hits, they're not getting fundraising. This is just how basic government has to function, and it's not, and there's people like you. You just mentioned 2025. There's a cliff coming, and nobody seems to really care right at the moment, and that's very frustrating and kind of alarming to me.
8: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the legislator seems they they like agencies to be able to let legislate on these big issues that really only corporate executives care about. So that means they can just point fingers at the agency when these corporate executives and co- big companies get mad and say, "Oh, it's not my fault; it's their fault." So go like go yell at them, um, and that's just not how government's supposed to work. Um, we have some big Supreme Court decisions possibly going to be released um, soon on the regulatory state that could um, start to limit some of their power. And I think any regulatory reform, and unfortunately, bluntly, it's not going to come from Congress. It's going to come from um, lawsuits that work their way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court finally says that they've had enough and want to... um, really uh, eliminates a lot of the regulatory state's power to legislate because this is Congress's job and Congress should be the one doing it.
2: Yeah. That's all we need to help out the IRS, more lawyers involved. right? Um, Travis next great piece in the wall street journal. Make sure you go read it. We have a link in the show notes as always read the whole piece. Uh, we're going to have you back again. Cause you're always sharp and we always enjoy you until we get you back on the program though, let folks know where they can follow you your social media and what else you got going on when you're not busy worrying about Villanova basketball.
8: Yeah, the easiest way to follow me is uh, at Tunex113.
2: Um,
8: I post all my pieces there that I write, and you can follow me for tax takes, sports takes, whatever you want.
2: He also has a piece out about uh, the Shapiro tax plan in Pennsylvania. Election year, good thing to check up on that. Uh, Travis Nix, you do great work, sir. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for coming back on the show and talking with us.
8: Thank you so much for having me
2: again. I always love being on. Yes, sir. Appreciate you. All the music on HerTel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.